is Polar Request, live from the heart of Brooklyn. Polar Request is an hour-long podcast about everything in and relating to technology. Starring two techno experts, Eric Newman, hi, and Chris Grabowski. Hello. This week's episode, DevOps Dynasty. Hello, everybody, and welcome to yet another Polar Request. My name is Eric Newman, and to the left of me across the East River is Chris Grabowski. How you doing? I'm doing pretty well. We missed you last week. Tyler and I missed you last week. I missed um, you guys. I, yeah, and you know, we were we were all holding hands across the East River just like we usually do. And um, I well, had a, it you know, was very... Now, end of the month, I will no longer be across the East River. Are you, oh, is it official? Are you moving uh, to the right side of the East River, literally? Well, that's where I'm looking. I still need an actual place, but it, it, it's, ah. been, it's been narrowed down to Brooklyn. But you're going to move to another Brooklyn. It's not going to be well, the Brooklyn that Tyler and I live in. It's going to be like one, like South Brooklyn, right? It's going to be the Brooklyn that's easy for me to get to. So, yeah. Right, which is not... not well, where we sorry, sorry, for me to get to work. Easy to get for me to get to All work. All I can say is that if they hadn't turned down the Myrtle Avenue L, which was where the M train was supposed to go, the M train used to go to the Brooklyn Bridge. It was an elevated line, and they tore it down like 80 years ago, and they replaced, they replaced it with a bus. <laughs> so... That's if if that train still existed, yeah, exactly. If if that train still existed, getting across Brooklyn would be so much easier. But property value being what it is, uh, it's not going to happen. So, and it's and it has would have to the subway would have to snake through the areas that are currently in gentrification, but not the higher stages of gentrification that would allow them or may may seem economically feasible to build a subway through the heart of Brooklyn, where we say we are. Anyway. I missed you, Christian. Tyler and I missed you, and I had I a really. I thank you, and uh, as I was saying, we were holding hands across the East River because I, I had a very, it was very inspirational for me last week. Because as I say, I'm building this media empire, and it's really, it's my dream, it's my pipe dream, and uh, and you guys are really helping me out. And I and Tyler and I did a show while you were working on a uh, DevOps project of ours, and mm-hmm. it was really it was the, I, one of the first times, one of the few times so far. And I've been able to actually get something, two things going at the same time. It's really cool. <laughs> it makes me feel like I actually, you know, have a company that makes things. Anyway, today's episode is going to be about DevOps, and we're going to talk about the stuff that we've been working on. And uh, But before we do that, we have a quick update. Tyler is not here, as I, we mentioned. Uh, he's at a hackathon. Little Star is hosting a, a, a weekend-long hackathon. And... Um, that is not a small hackathon by any means. Wow. Do you know anything about it? I don't know how much... I, I, don't, didn't... Know the, I don't know the details. He was telling me they were supposed to be presenting around noon today. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I guess they're celebrating now. But, my God. I mean, one thing is, uh, it sounds like Tyler got to go home. In my experience, <laughs> hackathons, you don't go home. You just no, keep on that's... going through. I could totally understand a weekend-long one, you go home. But, like, I've done, like, 12-hour and 24-hour uh, hackathons before. I did, a, I did a lock-in at a bowling alley. Does that count? Is I did that, an all-night land the, party the, when I was in high school. Uh, that, no, well, that, that's something that everybody who's uh, probably <laughs> listening to this has done. But. When a geek goes through puberty, he often has many land parties at his friends' house. No. Um, I think that for me, that was college, not so much... Uh, High school. Interesting. I was playing um, sports back in high school, come to think of it. <laughs> ah, well, I had asked Tyler if uh, we could report on the hackathon, not like submit work, but, you know, so mm-hmm. we could do a pull request live at the hackathon at Little Star. Uh, and he said, no, unfortunately, it wouldn't be right. Uh, it's closed to the public, and we are, unfortunately, as part of the media, mm-hmm. still the public. So 
when he comes back, hopefully he can tell us some sanitized details that we can share on the air. And uh, hopefully he learned a lot uh, throughout the whole experience. Now, mm-hmm. here's a question. From the reverse perspective, isn't this a way, if you're like, you know, like, like the Joe or, or Dom or the people at the top at Little Star, isn't this mm-hmm. a way to get a bunch of free consulting advice or like free ideas from people? So, yeah, uh, a lot of companies use it for that. Like uh, Facebook Messenger actually came out of a hackathon. Oh, but then they had – okay, hold on. Was the hackathon with Facebook employees or was the hackathon just open to the public? That particular one was a Facebook employees one. That's fine. I don't have a problem with that because they're already on board. So, interestingly, uh, MongoDB always hosts a pretty large one where it's uh, targeted at people uh, like ages 20 to 21 – and looking for, like, an entry-level job where you come up with something. And uh, this is open to the public, and it's one of the bigger ones here in New York. And it was, it was actually the case that uh, a few years back that uh, somebody made something in Go. And ever since, Go has been the language that everything but the actual core database is written in. Huh. Mongo. Yeah. And that's right. That sound came from our studio audience, Christian. I keep them in our Tupperware container during the week, and I let them out on Sundays just for us. Did you let them talk beforehand, or are they uh, still pretty, uh, uh, what's the right word, uh, little on the cold side? <laughs> no, 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 no. They, uh, they managed to stay pretty well work. like those bacteria that, that can hibernate. They managed to do pretty well on their own. Anyway, um, there, is a, there was a conference this past week. Uh, that I, I actually noticed just ambiently walking around the city, and it was uh, typographics. It was a 2017 typography conference. I should have gone. I, I would be sleeping in that conference. <laughs> I mean, I mean, yeah, because I mean, there's only one font that you need, and that's the monospace terminal font. Am I right? Yeah. You know. um, I'm trying I, to. Look, I'm try- I love that. That's what I'm talking about. That comes through on that. <laughs> That person is also a huge fan of him. Um, not the jeans. I'm trying to pull up the website for the the only website I hadn't pulled up before the show, actually. Because I uh, didn't think I need, needed to look at it. And boy, was I wrong. Uh, this is at 2017.typographics.com. And it's a kind of a nice website. Um, I don't know. It's just a typography conference in New York. And uh, the problem with these conferences is that the real, really good tickets are like a grand. And Well, normally uh, for these particularly larger conferences, uh, work will uh, fund it for right, you. Right, right. And I'm going like, to... Uh, like, uh, I have it. A... Go ahead. Go on. Oh, I was just going to say, uh, get, uh, giving you an example, uh, where I work uh, this week was VelocityConf, which is one of the big uh, O'Reilly, a bit more geared towards marketing uh, conferences. But, like, I mean, people are there to market to you by that, but it's very technical topics. Right. And uh, so we had like a team of five go. It uh, sounded pretty interesting, some of the talks. Some of them were a bit more like, oh, you know, if you need to scale, you should be using this tool. But, yeah. Interesting. Uh, there was NYC Developer Week that I could have gone to uh, under that under that uh, uh, reasoning if I had asked sooner, uh, if I had tried to procure the funding sooner. Uh, but with the, with the typography, Christian, come on. If I worked for you and I said, mm-hmm. hey, will you pay a grand so I can go to this conference and talk about fonts and colors? <laughs> no. What would you say? I'd be like, why does anybody care about fonts? Exactly. And then I'd have to spend the next half hour tap dancing, and you'd say, uh, no. Yeah, no. So. See, it, it's, an e- it's an easy argument to make if you're there uh, as a sponsor, and all of a sudden you're trying... Like, if you're a company who has a product that is uh, marketed towards other companies, 
it's B2B. and th- those kind of companies are the ones that are going to be right. I, I guess what I'm trying to say is specifically a tech product though, because you can be B2B and offer some like service and that doesn't make much sense. But if you're like, I don't know, like uh, me where it's like, Oh, we offer a DNS service, uh, uh, service as our primary product. It makes a lot of sense to go to these conferences and be like, Hey, other tech company, not a typography got- conference though. Yeah, I, it's I'm pretty hard pressed aside from the occasional proprietary font to think uh, who who would. Uh, I mean, uh, why, why proprietary fonts? Wouldn't you be towards open source typography? I would, even though but, much like open source software, open source typography is horrible. But you you got to think of who would who would benefit monetarily from these, and that's who sponsors these. Ah, okay. Well, I'm sure H and F J are the famous. Uh, typography foundry in new york is uh there i'd love to meet them oh well i went to one conference that actually gave me a typography book and it changed my life and that was in 2009 i'd love to go to another one but i also would like to i mean a thousand dollars is a thousand dollars with that much money i could buy a whole ipad pro with apple pencil or i could buy three monitors or i could buy a television Hmm. or i could buy a lot of pot anyway uh (laughs) anyway um yeah, uh, this is our one thing to mention while we're still at the top of the show. Oh, no, we're not. We just hit 10 minutes. Damn. Oh, well, we were at the top of the show. I wanted to mention, Christian, this is our 25th episode. This is 25th pull request. You, this is crazy. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> oh. I mean, 25 isn't a lot, you know, for podcasts, but a lot for us. <laughs> 25 weeks of really hard, hard-hitting content. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, today's hard-hitting content is going to be about DevOps, like we said. But first, it's time for our GitHub Issues of the Week. Our first GitHub Issue of the Week comes from Pilot. It says, Istio, or I guess it's Istio, uh, route rules match criteria not respected for ingress traffic. Uh, the writer says, I created a service that selects among two, let me read this class, among two deployments. I created two Istio root rules. The first defaults all traffic to V1. The second requests, sec, the second sends requests that have a particular header to V2. I then deployed the sleep sample so I can test these rules from inside the cluster. I found that both rules worked as, as expected. I then created an ingress. What's an ingress? So ingress, ingress is uh, just uh, incoming traffic. Okay. Uh, I then created it. Well, what do you create an ingress? So this is an ingress controller. So uh, a little backstory on Pilot. It's, wait, wait, uh, wait, wait hold, on, hold on. Let me. I'll just get to the problem then. Uh, created an ingress and so that I could initiate requests from outside the cluster. I tested it by sending requests from outside the cluster, and I found that the default rule was applied to every request, including those that match the second rule. Sounds like Apache. Although that I am doing this in a non note that I am doing this in a non-default namespace. However, this does not seem to be the issue. See also, then they link, and then they also enclose the rules. Hmm. Uh, this looks like uh, oh, just YAML. Uh, okay. So what's the what's the deal with this? What is Pilot? What so is this? Pilot, what is Ingress? Uh, so this is uh, Pilot is very Kubernetes specific is uh, probably the first thing that should be noted. Okay, and Kubernetes is a clustering service, orchestration, orchestration management platform, management platform or clustering. So no, not clustering. Orchestration management platform. More on that later by Google. Hmm. Right, and actually, it was the first thing adopted into the CNCF Cloud Native Compute Foundation. Good. Yep, 
And so what Pilot does is there's a recent, uh, more recent feature in uh, Kubernetes that kind of replaces um, like an HA proxy, Nginx, even Apache in some cases, uh, being able to uh, proxy around your traffic where you have these ingress and egress proxies, which essentially they, what they are is a bunch of IP table rules. Uh, and, so ingress is in, egress is out. Yep. And okay. Pilot is automating these. As, uh, so that way you can set these rules to say uh, basically more granular rules in your IP tables than what these ingress and egress proxies normally let you do. Where instead of it being that like uh, the traditional uh, 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 proxies in Kubernetes are you have a bunch of containers with uh, different IPs and ports uh, that are just uh, uh, randomly generated. And then you have what's called the service, which is the, an IP tables rule that says every, uh, every uh, uh, container of this type is now behind this IP tables uh, natting so that way when you make a request to a particular IP address on a specific port it round robins across all of those containers and then ingress uh, uh, proxies will set up a rule saying uh, uh, go to this container if this go to this container if that gotcha and so the actual issue which let me just get back to is saying that there's a default uh, rule that it wants to match on, but then for a specific subset, do something else, and it's not actually doing that. Uh, let's see, what, what are the replies? And uh, so the question is if it's uh, due to precedence. Precedence. Uh, precedence, sorry. Uh, and uh, so uh, what it actually seems to be is that the matching rule is a little off. Uh, also, just like Apache. <laughs> this really could just be an HC access issue. I mean, that's completely different, I know. But Well, it's the same idea. It's the same idea. Different it's the out-of-order rule matching, processing, stopping, executing thing. One big difference to note here, though, is this is using uh, your kernel's networking as opposed to Apache's user space networking. Ah, so what does... Uh-oh. Logic just uh, died on me again. I have this... I've been having this real problem with this computer lately. Huh. Uh, I think I'm fine. Actually, no. I'm gonna have to uh, pull a Golden Girls and stop the recording for a second. I'm really right. sorry. We're doing so well. I feel like I feel like it's an electricity issue. Anyway, be right back after these messages. And we're back. And I can edit out all of my singing. Or maybe not. Maybe I could leave it in. Who knows? We'll find out when we produce the show. I've had this issue. I've had this issue. I don't know what it is. But the past month, and this is not the first time we've had this exact same issue with Logic, where it says, error trying to synchronize audio and... This might as well be a GitHub issue of the week as soon as I post it on GitHub. But seriously, this is annoying. Well, Logic's not on GitHub, but... Can I so still complain wait, about a Stack Overflow? Will be a Stack Overflow issue of the week. I, I don't think there is Stack Overflow. For Apple discussion the boards where I'll get yelled at for not doing something right. Why? Why? <laughs> you have this problem with Logic, but your computer still needs updates. Well, okay, but Logic isn't updated. Yeah, but your computer still needs. Okay, but that's not what the yeah, problem is. Yeah, that's the Apple discussion board. It's. Did you try rebooting? Or I, all are you I have to do is rebooting? restart Logic, and it's fine. But it yeah. says error trying to sync audio and MIDI. And then it gave the same sample rate uh, invalid issue. What MIDI? We've got no MIDI going on. All this... Well, that... 
So the fact that it runs for a bit and then hits this error just randomly makes me think it's actually memory. But what happens or is... Like, or like an actual bug in logic where it's like uh, all of a sudden it looks in some particular address in memory and that whatever it's looking for is not there. What happened... When this happens, I hear like a garbling in the audio processing. Ah, actually, you know what? I don't even know what part of the chain that's in because logic is doing the monitoring too. So I don't know. It has a hiccup and then there's a delay in the, in the processing which kills the whole me being able to talk. And uh, or in the monitoring rather, and I have to stop and I have to quit it. But I don't know what really causes this issue. Is it like is there some kind yeah. of short that happens? Is there? So, so I'd say um, you this is happening consistently. You can run dtrace on it when next time you next time start up uh, logic from the command line, which uh, the naming convention is going to be a pain. But yeah, once yeah. You that I out, know how to I know how to start this Mac OS folder apps yeah from... then all you have to do is pre uh detrace it and you can see like uh syscalls and memory usage okay and then i do what post that on apple discussion guidelines and or the apple forums and they'll say oh your computer's not up to date that's what you need to do probably no but it'll be able it'll be able to show you at a much lower level is it a memory issue is it just doing something stupid what if it is a memory issue i mean if 32 gigs of ram i'm probably not that it doesn't yeah, make a difference it's probably but it tries not to... your, it's not it's probably not getting ohmed it's probably like a per process let thing, me ask you this here's the real problem logic because this is a hackintosh and there is you know unexpected behavior even though i've had hackintoshes for years i've never seen anything like this uh uh just oh is there is this a chance is there a chance this is a hardware issue is there a chance, like, I have to, like... Everything else is running fine. It's just logic, right? Right, but logic is really using my computer. Like, it, could it be, like, it slightly overheats? Could it be, like, I need to get better mm, air ventilation? No. Is, do I need to... I mean, the only thing I could possibly think is it's got some weird thing with your sound card that... Or, but those are all integrated these that, days, and I have a standard motherboard. Well, no, I mean I mean the actual input sound card that oh. you're uh, recording on. Oh, my deck. Yeah. Yeah. Because it, it could be, it could be uh, making logic think... You have a MIDI input. Like I know, uh, my, my audio interface does, in fact, uh, uh, as long as you're connected over USB, says it has a MIDI input. Interesting. You know what? Uh, this mixer might actually have a MIDI input, and and it has a really bad driver because it doesn't even say the name of the mixer, the deck, when I or brand name or anything when I plug it in. It just says USB audio codec, and I have a feeling that it's some kind of like. Like, whatever the VESA driver is for graphics, mm. I feel like it's using that for the USB audio, and it's just not very good. That, that could be. Anyway, let's get back, back to Back to the, the show. I think we've wasted... Let's, let's cut uh, the GitHub issues a little short. Well, let's do one more. Um, sure. How about we do... Uh, React on Rails or Ansible? Let's do Ansible, since that's uh, related to the show. I ah, think. yes, that's right. Part of our DevOps dynasty is Ansible. Yeah. Let's hear it. Oh. I almost said, let's hear it from our news department and play the wrong... Okay. S3 module uses excessive I.O. and fails when uploading files over 5 gigabytes. Uh, the writer says, issue type bug report, component name, S3 module. Hey, Jeff Bezos. Fix your stuff <laughs> rather than buying Whole Foods. Uh, like, he, like he actually does anything. Well, I actually don't know if AWS directly contributes this or not. Yeah. Uh, summary. When I try to use the S3 module's put mode to upload a file from S- from to S3 from Ubuntu, much like we will do with our podcast later tonight, uh, <laughs> I get the failure... Well, it won't be over 5 gigs, man, that's probably... I get the failure listed below under actual results, and it just says, failed, no start of JSON car found. 
and a uh, standard error traceback. The S3 bucket module seems to work okay. The only, I've only encountered problems with this S3 module. Okay. Uh, what is the deal? He's just trying to put a file so that's large, that's I think, big. Uh, a, little, a little background on this is, would be interesting. Uh, the fact that one, Ansible is written in Python. Two, the S3 module uses AWS's uh, SDK called uh, Bado. Okay. Which is a Python library for interacting with uh, a- a- AWS in general. So an interesting thing here about the heavy I/O usage, I would actually expect that to be on uh, the AWS side. What if the, S3, the than the uh, Ansible side? What if the file system on AWS is FAT32? There's your problem. You need it's not. <laughs> it's not. I know it's. <laughs> it's not. definitely not. But you know. In fact, uh, if they're anything like uh, the open source uh, object stores, it's going to be a very generic thing that actually serializes it into block data under the hood. That can be any particular file system type. Most likely uh, something like CFS. If they're, I doubt S3 does this, but if they really wanted to push the, uh, uh, the envelope, they could do ButterFS. Interesting. Uh, doing some more debugging here are some results so far. Trying to test out different Python versions. I know that there is a Python, moving the Python Python three five from Python two seven is a big deal, even though it shouldn't so, be. But well, actually, I should take that it back. Is, of course, it, it is a do. slight uh, deal, big I mean, deal. Well, there is, if you write your code really well, it's uh, just add a few little safety nets around here or there, to, because you can. Uh, the, in fact, many open source libraries do this now. Where they put in all these little fail safes for being able to use either version of Python. Ah, I mean, I, sh- I misspoke because you know it's just like upgrading the PHP seven. So, uh, what? It's when know. a programming language environment introduces a new uh, major update and has breaking changes. It's not crazy, whether it's Java oh, or PHP or, or Go or Python. Actually, Go. Go has a very strict rule of uh, very few additions to the language and uh, always backward compatible. Oh, that's good. You yeah. can't spell good without Go. Although there's people there's people in the community who aren't like the core Go members, but people who have big influence in Go who are like, no, we need a version 2.0 and let's add generics and all sorts of other things that were like things that Go purposely said, no, these are stupid. Interesting. So I don't yeah. know if... Uh... I didn't try using S3 bucket for any files. I just used to create the bucket in, uh, indepotently. Did he mean indefinitely? Indempotently. Okay. Idempotently. Idempotently? Is that a word? Yeah. What does that mean? Oh. From a restful service standpoint, an operation for an operation or service call to be idempotent, clients can make that same call repeatedly while producing the same result. In other words... Making multiple identical requests has the same effect as making a single request. That is a very good uh, interview question. Uh, not really. It's more of a language thing. But uh, what do you mean? It's not. Uh, I mean, it's more of an English language thing. But uh, well, this is, seems to be some tech jargon. Mo- does most it? people, most people who sat through some CS classes back in the day, will have heard the word idempotent. I sat through many computer science and software engineering classes in my time, and I've never heard idempotence. Idempotence. Actually, it might have been it might have been math for me. I can't remember offhand. Okay. Uh, indepotent elements and binary operations. Interesting. Okay. Well, that's my that's my TIL for today. Um, so, what's the deal? 
I don't... Is he, uh... So, I think part of it is actually go, things going on in the uh, a, uh, AWS SDK. It is odd that he's seeing this when just trying to create the bucket and not actually uploading. And if we read on... Let's see... Oh, there's actually a specify S3 bucket versus the S3 module, which is interesting. And let's see... Oh yeah, he had an error in his code ultimately. With uh, he had to update to the uh, S three bucket and then add a few lines, and that actually solved this. Oh. Uh. Okay. Well, cool. So it was his fault. I thought you said uh, you no, keep he, alluding uh, to it maybe an uh, an AWS issue, but if it, if he could work work around it, if he could well, it's a different it's a different use here. It's just a different approach where while the just S three uh, module could have worked, and that actually does seem to have an issue here, the S three bucket module, which is a bit more specific, does work. Gotcha. Okay. Um, well, here's uh, since you weren't here last week, I hijacked the jingle. For GitHub issues to do uh, Tyler's plus one, but since he's not here this week, he can't hear me use another jingle in place of this one. But I don't know what to use because I really only use this one. What do you What do you think? Should we do the uh... tag team back again? Check it's That one. I I've never heard that before. That's woo, like there it, it is. That is, I have not heard that bit of it. You know, there's a conspiracy theory that Obama is in the music video for this. Um, that that is weird. But uh, we could do. Uh, what about just the chorus of "Whoop"? There it is. Uh, that's much harder to play on my jingle machine. Uh, we could do our plus one of the week. Uh, I don't know. Well, how about how about we just do it? Okay, fine. It's fine. It's our plus one. Of the week. Tyler's first plus one of the week goes to Mozilla for offering a $2 million bounty for building a decentralized internet. Despite the internet... That seems actually very low for what that'd be doing. Well, I mean, yes. I mean, well, you know, if you just want strings and balloons, maybe... No. Uh, The thing is, is that the internet was supposed to already be decentralized. That was the purpose of making it this way. And the content providers and uh, the media consumption... No, no, no. When when all of this stuff was decentralized. When it started. But I think you gotta be specific about internet versus the web. Where web is HTTP, and you have these servers that uh, hit everything, and then you also have no. But it's I supposed to be a server that's does. just anywhere, and you and you know if you can you could just you know if you have a server right. in California, then you you know your website is from there, and the the idea right, but that's not really because then it's whoever is serving that uh, content is the one who is uh, the ser- the server is centralized. A decentralized internet would be the idea of everything being peer to peer, where all of a sudden it's just like you publish a website or something. Interesting. But uh, but I, I I think also services like AOL and the new AOL, which is Facebook and that, that type of stuff, and that, you know media consumption services like Netflix and Hulu, etc., also work to centralize. What I mean, honestly, like in the early nineties, I'd right. say the internet was pretty. Oh no, so, AOL. The 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 internet was yeah. de- pretty decentralized, but things like AOL and Prodigy and well, CopyServe, no, all that, that kind of centralized. That, it, the no? way it was archi- the, the way it was still architecture, you had to go through an ISP, and that's where a lot of this issue comes from. The idea would be that you just have like a firewall in front of you, and then you do peer to peer everywhere, 
and uh, you'd be able to access whatever you need via peer-to-peer. So that way, uh, like how we download torrents for, say, operating system images. Right, definitely not downloading like... torrents for TV shows because that's illegal. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> it'd, be, it'd be like you'd access websites through, uh, through a similar means and you'd also be able to pu- publish your, like, the submitting your data part, which that might actually be a little different of saying you're not doing peer-to-peer there. You might actually have a server that you send your data to for things like, uh, say, you're doing like a checkout form and you need to be a bit more private because you're pressing on credit card information. Ah, Interesting. Yes, hackers would love to have peer-to-peer connections with banks. Imagine that kind of decentralization. Um, imagine your life without the internet. A Mozilla in the National Science Foundation are looking for innovative wireless technologies that connect people and the to the internet and to each other. A total of two million dollars in prize money is available for wireless solutions that get people online after disasters or that connect communities lacking reliable internet access. They say thirty-four million people, or ten percent have lack access to quality, as a modifier, subjective, internet connectivity. A number that jumps to 39% in rural communities and 41% on tribal lands. wonder how they measured that. When disasters strike, these staggering statistics are compounded. Millions more can lose vital connectivity right when it's needed the most. So this is weirdly not decentralized internet in the uh, way that it's traditionally designed, where you actually ha- ha- like like what I was talking about. This sounds decentralized in the idea that uh, you need to. It's just looking for a new means where anybody with uh, like so it's getting on the internet that's decentralized rather than the the service content and the services that run on the internet being yeah. decentralized. So they're saying, "Hey, I don't need an ISP anymore," or "I could uh, somehow connect to a satellite instead of uh, having to go to your nearest cell tower." Well, Google and Facebook have both tried. Their hats are creating decentralized internet. Google's had Google had the balloon thing. Facebook had the drone thing, and and uh, Mozilla is just putting two million dollars out. I don't. That's definitely not enough money unless it involves a lot of just like you know sketches. Unless it's hey, I've got a theory here. Right. Yeah. Well, what'd you do with the two million? Nothing. Nothing. Uh, they have spent it on a party. <laughs> <laughs> Updating iTunes. Updating. <laughs> uh, uh, sh- shut up, or we have to give the money back. Okay. Uh, so they, ha- they started the Wireless Innovation for Network Society, or WINS, Challenges, run by Mozilla and sponsored by the National Science Foundation, the NSF, which is under the administration of somebody that a lot of people say is killing things like this. It's funny how it still kind of happens. Uh, the NSF seeks practical new wireless solutions that will help connect people to the Internet in challenging circumstances. They have two challenges. The first one is the off-the-grid in- grid internet challenge, wireless solutions for, communi- for communication that could be rapidly deployed in post-disaster situations where internet access is unavailable or compromised. And the second is the smart community networks challenge, wireless solutions for communication that can be built on top of the existing infrastructure to enhance internet connectivity in communities that need greater access. What if you just have, like, net- what if Netflix just starts making satellites? Or, like, little antennas. That's all that people want. Just let people just go right to Netflix. I mean... And Facebook uh, and YouTube. And, you know, that could be your basic cable tier of the internet. Oh, no. That's the net neutrality stuff, isn't it? Yep. Ugh. Well... But the idea is you really do need, like, something like a satellite or, uh, if you got really creative, some kind of conductive... uh, molecule that you're able to just uh, travel through the air or something. Like chemtrails. Like no. <laughs> I mean, those, you know, they have aluminum in them. Think that of would all con- the cancer. That, <laughs> would con- that, that aluminum can conduct electricity. 
Um, each challenge consists of two stages. And you could read more about this on wirelesschallenge.mozilla.org. There's a stage one design concept and a stage two working prototype concept. Uh, if you want to read more about it, visit wirelesschallenge.mozilla.org because we have more stuff to get to, like our second plus one of the week. And next week, my plus one will be new theme music. The second plus one of the week goes to a Finnish startup, Varjo Farho, for VR photorealism. They created a new VR platform with a 70 megapixel display uh, that is supposed to be hyper or just photorealistic. So the things that you're looking at, whether it's an augmented reality or virtual reality, will look exactly like they're actually there in the same resolution that you see things normally. Hmm. Anything to add? They, uh, they, they mention they, that the, 70 me- cool. the photorealistic resolution is only available for things in your current, what you're looking directly at. If you're the things in your periphery, they've, they've found that they don't actually need to render them at the full 70 so they can save a couple joules in energy. That makes sense. It does, and also you don't really. If anything, it's, it, it makes it more realistic. It, yeah, I would say so because you don't get perfect vision in your periphery anyway. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, that's that. Varjo, Varho is the J. How do you pronounce the J? Varho, like it's Finnish. Uh, Finnish. It's Finnish, Finnish right? yeah. Yeah, I want to say it's like a Y. Vario. Vario. Maybe. I don't know. Um, they say uh, that it pushes VR technology 10 years ahead of the current state of the art. Well, then it's now the current state of the art. But there's a few issues, latency, frame rate, and uh, how they plan to produce and display content at such a high resolution. 70 megapixels per frame. It's pretty good. Hmm. And they say it's uh, uh, getting it ready for users and applications starting in Q4 2017. They're there. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Or it's vaporware and you'll never hear about it again. <laughs> I know VR. I need to get... I, you know, I was thinking... Uh, as I have to scroll for my thunder sound effect, I was thinking about getting the new iPad just cause, like, so I can have more jingles on the screen. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That sounds like a legitimate tax write-off. Um, anyway... Uh, let's continue our coverage, the ongoing saga of Prime Minister Theresa May try- murdering the internet. May murders the internet. Let's hear it from our news department. No money on presents. News. Tell yous. I don't think she did anything this week. <laughs> yeah, no, I didn't hear anything. And, you know, there was another. I think, I think she's still sulking from the, from election, the election. Yeah, I. Uh, yeah, I know that, that that Lord that Lord Helmet there gave her a run for <laughs> her money. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, Sorry, Lord Dark Helmet. <laughs> Darth Helmet, yeah. Uh, what is it? That's not Lord Blank, Lloyd Blankfine. I don't know. I, I, that, that guy who's always in some kind of costume. Uh, no, it's great. Um, I, I just know that she tries to use every excuse that she can whenever there's another terror attack, which seems to be weekly these days. Uh, whenever there's another terror attack that she always says, oh, terrorists had, they were only able to plan this because of encryption, because of the internet. Right. And if she makes it illegal in England, that's going to stop? Okay. So in, in, there's got to be some conspiracy th- uh, conspiracy theorist who's like, how come uh, terrorist attacks only happen right before elections or during elections? How come terrorist attacks only happen in countries where you know what, I'm not gonna not gonna finish this sentence. Uh, this is not a <laughs> not a political show. And now that I'm 30 years old, I might actually have a better filter on the things that I say. So I'm not gonna finish that sentence. But uh, anyway, 
That wasn't our real news story, of course. Our real news story is about how our own government is doing horrible things to us. Uh, because did you know that the CIA has malware in most consumer routers? Except mine. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so let's hear that from our news department. Nobody on presents news to you. The internet contains in the latest deluge of information and revelations from WikiLeaks both seven series of documents. We find yet another shocking piece from our own Central Intelligence Agency. It seems the CIA are at it again with a tool called Cherry Blossom. Use the hijack consumer routers and perform man-in-the-middle attacks. An implanted device called Flytrap can be used to monitor your internet traffic whilst implanting nefarious exploits directly onto your router. Flytrap implants a specialized firmware onto your router called Cherry Blossom, utilizing your router's standard firmware upgrade mechanism. Since most consumer wireless routers have been targeted by this attack, Chances are you'll never know if you've been hit. So what does this mean for computer security going forward? Only time will tell. And so many Americans are afraid of what happens next. We at least know the world still turns and the truth marches on. And that's why this has been News to You. Brought to you by Pneumonia. So, interesting way around that, that, I mean, I haven't even done DDWRT. this, but, uh, Well, there's that, but, uh, that... It's, since they're saying firmware, though, I'm wondering how deep it goes, because if it is firmware, it goes uh, deeper than just the operating system. But what you can do is build your own router entirely. <laughs> okay. Uh, this, is, this is some good post-apocalypse tutorials. When we have no, to, really after easy. the it, economic... It's, just build, it's building a computer, and then you flash, like, PFSense or uh, DDWRT. OpenWRT is probably uh, a bit uh, simpler than DDWRT. And then from there, you just run uh, your wireless card in antenna mode, and then you can connect to it uh, from your local computer, or you use a wired connection. Interesting. Don't routers, though, have to have a limited amount of RAM to function properly? I heard something about buffer bloat, and uh, that if you... Because a lot of consumer consumer router manufacturers are just adding RAM into routers because it's cheap, and I found Mm -hmm. out that if there's a a law of diminishing returns, you can actually put too much RAM in a router, and it won't effectively route your traffic, route your traffic to uh, where you want. Well, unless you specify your TX and uh, RX queue specifically. How many hours would it take you to build a new router? Me? Uh, probably 30 minutes to build the machine, uh, about uh, 10 minutes to put the OS on, and then probably about another 30 to uh, uh, thirty minutes to an hour you, of configuring it. You think you can build a router if you had a pile of parts and, an, and a good internet connection in two and a half hours? Is that what you're saying? Uh, yeah, I'd say so. I want, right. to, I want to test that theory. I, don't, I, I think that's that? like half as much time as you need at least. Do you want to fund the hardware? How about we look for surplus hardware? Is that possible? Well, if you can find like a decent... Like uh, the, uh, actual... the, the New York City school system has got to have a ton of surplus hardware. If they happen to have like a uh, uh, InfiniBand... Uh, Nick just laying around. That'd be oh, awesome. so you need a certain Although, kind of Nick. Well, I don't know if we can get Infinite Band going to our apartments, but that, but that'd be ideal for building your own router. Ah, well, anyway, back to uh, Vault Seven. Ah, ah, ah. Cherry Blossom is basically a remote. Oh, stormy. 
uh, is basically a remotely controllable firmware-based implant for wireless networking devices, including routers and wireless access points, which exploits router vulnerabilities to gain unauthorized access and then replace firmware with custom Cherry Blossom firmware. That was poorly written. I didn't write it. An implanted device called Flytrap can then be used to monitor the internet activity and deliver software exploits of in- to targets of interest. A leaked CIA manual reads, The wireless device itself is compromised by implanting a custom... Yeah, this is like the fifth time I've said that. Some devices allow upgrade... I've read, said that already. Sorry. Even though I highlighted hmm. it, I forgot that I already said it. Uh... Once it takes full control on the wi- of the wireless device, it reports back to CIA com- co- uh, CIA controlled command and control servers, C- C- CIA CNC servers, CIA CNCS. There you go. Uh, CIA controlled command and control servers, referred to as Cherry Tree, from where it receives instructions and accordingly performs malicious attacks, which include a monitoring network traffic to collect email addresses, chat usernames, MAC addresses, and VoIP numbers. B, redirecting connected users to malicious websites. C, injecting malicious content into the data to stream fraudulently, oh, to a data stream to fraudulently deliver malware and compromise the connected systems. D, setting up VPN titles to access clients connected to Flytrap's WLAN or LAN for further exploitation. Or E, copying the full network traffic of a targeted device. And if you go to WikiLeaks and you look up uh, Cherry Blossom, you'll find a list of all of the routers, all of the routers, that have Cherry Blossom on them. And it's interesting. There's a couple of interesting things. First, because I'm the most important person in the world, my router's fine. Not <laughs> on the list. How about you? Uh, looking at it now, actually. Um, what do you have? I've got the Asus... Uh, what is it? Uh, AC... No, nope. the only Asus routers on here are WL160G, WL300, WL330G, WL500. Well, let me just make sure that's not like a uh, model what's name. Call it a, a, oh, yeah, like a like this like a, a product name versus model name. You know what? That's uh, it's probably a good because I might actually <laughs> think about that. I've got it's under two names: the AC87, three uh, uh, the R, the U, uh-huh. also known as the AC2400. Okay, or. Or trying to find a mo- bit more of a detailed one without actually. Well, while you're looking for that, we can router. say we can talk about another round of, uh, another router manufacturer that starts with the letter A. Apple. Apple's devices escape mention in WikiLeaks' latest Vault Seven CIA hacking document says Mac rumors, but they're wrong because it actually does have an entry for Apple's uh, Airport Express, but there but that might be an old version. It, it's, well, it, I also thought that they were discontinuing the airport altogether recently. Ah, well, they say it's just right here, right on WikiLeaks. Apple Airport Express, uh, A and B. Oh, that is an old one. And oh, sorry, no, A, no, sorry, it's not A and B. It's B and G. So their Airport Express 802.11G from what 2004. Their access point uh, has been compromised. Router, the most popular hmm. router in 2004, the Linksys WRT54G is on here, and all of its variants. Oh wow. They, they probably went with, like, one of the most popular routers out there. They did, which is why I'm which, glad that my router, notice, I don't think, got hit. The usual uh, very low to mid-grade, uh, uh, consumer-grade uh, routers, well, I know you, you and uh, myself, we both have... Uh, Geek routers. Like, s- still consumer-grade, but high-end consumer-grade. Right, because ISIS will only afford the Linksys WRT54G routers, not... 
Well, this sounds to me a bit more of like a American citizen kind of stuff. Than, oh uh, no! But the government Google. is only supposed to be spying on terrorists, Christian, not American mm-hmm. citizens, because of the Constitution. Well, I mean, I guess if they could man in the middle of the firmware upgrades from, like, a uh, particular download uh, server uh, somewhere in other regions, that would make sense. But if they're only in the U.S., then they would be doing this. Yeah. They could be using... So, interesting man in the middle tool. Well, that actually, actually, hold on. There's, there's, on. there's one more thing that I want to get to because Linksys actually spoke about this. Uh, and they and it says well, Linksys okay. and not well, even this Cisco. Is on, this is on this topic, though. Okay. That I think it makes more sense it. to say it now. Which... Uh, also interesting that I just noted, uh, most of the uh, remote management is either HTTP or Telnet. And uh, anyway, uh, what I will say, though, is uh, the man-in-the-middle uh, tool that was uh, I was about to talk about is called Pineapple. is recently f- uh, featured on Silicon Valley as a way to do man-in-the-middle attacks on local internet. And that's real? It's Yeah. Oh, that's cool. It's uh, So you can also do this by uh, uh, ways that... Um, you can. It's like a network monitoring tool as it's inter, as it's um, intended use. I mean, isn't Nmap a just, network monitoring tool too? That's also used nefariously. Well, yeah, yes, but uh, many many network monitoring tools are. Uh, in fact, uh, there are things that just read packets coming off of servers that you could put on your router, and then from there, uh, just look at all the traffic going on if you do have access to that router. Interesting. And you could do things to that. Uh, from there, yep. Okay, well, um, Linksys has something to say, and it says Linksys and not Cisco, so I guess maybe because it's many old Linksys routers and uh, might be better for I think SEO. Linksys is still... Uh, Linksys is still I owned think they keep by them Cisco. For, yeah, I think they keep them separate, though, for the uh, consumer-grade hardware. Ah, well, they say WikiLeaks released details of the Cherry Blossom project a week ago, and we just told you about it. Linksys warm the firmware can be loaded onto a router with physical access to the device and proximity to it via Wi-Fi. But we just read on WikiLeaks that it says that you could just use the standard firmware upgrade mechanism on the router after it's been compromised. So, uh, The company has published a firmware update to rid its devices of the compromise and advises them to install the update and perform a factory reset and, of course, disable features like guest access and UPnP, universal plug-and-play, if they're not being used. I feel like Universal Plug and Play might have been the biggest router disaster of the 2000s. So, but you know, like I said, I thought I don't, I don't know. There's um, it, and it only really works actual, on Windows, doesn't it? The Plug and Play stuff? Universal Plug and Play, UPnP on the router. Uh, maybe that. But there's um, blanking on the word. Uh, there is a way to do it where. There's a thing where if you're physically by the router, and this is, uh, as far as I've seen, only on consumer-grade hardware, uh, if you're by the router, you press this button, and then you try connecting to the access point, and it's basically... That's WDS. Thank you. That's, yeah. That is, it, yes. No, UPnP is something, I'm pretty sure it's only Windows, and this is very, like, 2003, 2004. Let me take you back in time to the good old days of Windows XP, where it's like if you were playing a game that needed a port open for a firewall, it would, if you mm-hmm. had UPnP enabled and uh, the game was aware of UPnP, I'm trying not to pop so much on the P's, uh, that it would just open the port for you. Which, of course, with the ginormous buffer overflows exploits well, that came out of Windows, I mean, that's a really great way to have malicious software arbitrarily export, execute code that opens ports so, in your router. I mean, it makes sense on if you're running the thing yourself. It makes sense if you don't know what do you're doing. If you have no idea what a router is, and you and you and you just bought this game and you want to play it, oh, and the you're game, saying the router, 
Oh, the router. Okay. Yeah. Because otherwise, that, you'd, I, have I to, you'd have to you'd have to port forward or maybe set up a DMZ. Look, but uh, this just. I mean, na- nowadays it's just use standard ports. It's weird if you don't. Interesting. I mean, it's. I mean, we've negotiated around that problem, much like we've negotiated around the problem that used to exist. Uh, really plagued the web. You weren't allowed to hit back on many websites when entering uh, data on a multi-page form. We figured that one out. Well, I mean, these days it's still the case on a lot of websites. Oh, not a lot of bad websites. Anyway, I don't know what I was thinking. Maybe that we lived in a country where only the government, you know, surveilled on uh, people like terrorists. <laughs> I guess I was naive. There's one guy in there who sounds like a seal. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> uh, well, you know, they do spend the whole week in a Tupperware container, Christian. It's not, uh, hmm. not too... Not, they don't have a lot well, of breathing anywho. room. Anyway, um... Okay, well, an hour in, almost, and 48 minutes in, and uh, now we can get to the real meat of the episode. Meltop! It's DevOps! I don't know why. (laughs) (laughs) I'm one for misdirections today. Uh, DevOps, or Development Plus Operations, is a burgeoning field in the world of information technology today. Uh, I I think um, the people who are... Like the DevOps thought leaders would argue, it's more of a culture. Uh huh. Is it like a culture, like veganism's a culture? Oddly enough, very similar. Ah, yes. They like very, to very evangelize. Similar. They like to denigrate. They like to shame, and uh, they think yep. that their way is the best. Yep. Yep. DevOps taking the sh out of it. But uh, what I will say is, it's uh, from a high level standpoint, it's the idea of. Getting your developers and your operations to work together a bit more closely, where your operations would be like your sysadmins in days of old. Now they call them like the DevOps engineers. Everybody's an engineer developers. these days. Just so, it- so uh, it's like a, a, an idea of uh, like your developers have access to the prod servers is a very DevOpsy thing, but like uh, you still have to give them an identity and uh, filter permissions kind of thing, like an ACL. And then uh, your DevOps engineers also will uh, solve things through uh, code as well as just scripting things as as well as ad hoc. So I think uh, think what you're describing... In a very DevOps-heavy area, they're going to be like, automate, code this up. It's uh, ideal that way. I think what you're describing is the natural tension between software developers who want to make an application that, quote, works, and DevOps engineers that have to put that software somewhere on a server where it also has to, quote, work. And, cer- and make sure it right. Runs. And the <laughs> environment that you used to develop, I'm not gonna. I don't want to say a percentage, but is it usually exactly the same as your deployment production environment? Yes or so no. So these days, with things like uh, Docker and Vagrant, I would say okay. yes. Yes. So okay. with modern tools, you can virtualize whatever production environment that you need, and there are also tools that allow you to orchestrate things, like orchestration tools, to go on a variety of different environments, uh, so that even though, so computers that might have different operating systems may still be able to be part of a cluster together. Mm-hmm. Is that true? Yep, and I'd say particularly HashCorp does a really good job at that with their suite of tools. Who, okay, HashCorp like- make what? Uh, they make Vagrant, Packer, and Terraform are the three oh. I'm thinking of. They make other things as well. Interesting. I mean, Packer, three, you know, it is pride today. <laughs> mm. uh, that is actually probably the joke that we've had on the show. <laughs> pride for Packer? Oh, man. Um, no. By the way, just a quick tangent. Pride, I, like, I don't want to say anything about the movement, but I've seen a lot of companies co-opting it. And I got a That's, notification from Tinder. Uh, while I was on a date with a girl, 
saying Tinder supports. <laughs> oh, it was Tinder supports Pride. Well, also, why like, are you looking at your phone during a date? That's a little weird. But no, go on. <laughs> okay, no, it wasn't. It's a longer story, but it was more like she was over than out on a date. <laughs> uh, but anyway, no, I was oh, just oh. I just checked my phone and I was just like, and it just said, uh, and it wasn't even it wasn't even like you have a match. It just said Tinder supports Pride. 2017, and it's a bunch of emoji. Is that really necessary? <laughs> Is it really necessary? Why not just, you know, let people do what they want and express themselves how they want, whatever. Too much social commentary this week. Um, anyway, DevOps. Um, it's interesting because Wikipedia has a whole section on the cultural change says DevOps is more is more than just let me read it in some IT guys speak. DevOps is more than just a tool or a process change. It inherently requires an organizational culture shift. This cultural change is especially difficult because of the idiots that work in IT now. Because of I love you guys. Uh, mm-hmm. Because of the con- conflicting nature of departmental roles, operations seeks mm-hmm. organizational stability. Developers seek change, or you know things working well, uh, and testers seek risk reduction. Getting these groups to work cohesively so, is a critical challenge in the enterprise DevOps adoption. So I would agree with this uh, uh, definition of it in many ways. It is the case that there's also a DevOps role, which is uh, often a very broad, broadly used topic. But I'd say the most common one is what your sysadmins were in days of old. And then also, oh, hey, you can automate the stuff that a sysadmin would just be like ad hoc uh, bashing or... Uh, scripting, so the even goal, though there's still tons of scripts usually. The goal of development operations, really, if you're a DevOps engineer, your ultimate far and away goal is to put yourself out of a job. So all you have to do, well, nobody no, has not, to do anything. Well, just Whenever somebody says push to prod when you deploy, everything is already done. Or do you even yeah, have to say that because yeah. of continuous then the, delivery? Then there's the keeping things running. Like... You know, if you do have, all of a sudden you're like, oh, I need to scale this database. And particularly if you're not in the cloud, I think that's where, like, if you are in uh, DevOps and you're in the cloud, you can automate yourself out of a job, probably. I mean, If but you're you not can... in the cloud, you, like, you do have these things of like, okay, we got to be able to scale our database servers. Uh, this means attaching network storage that maybe you have to a- a- figure out a way to orchestrate your own NAS unit or something. Or if you're lucky, you're in one of these uh, physical hardware uh, clouds where you can actually spin these things up, but it is a bit more set up, and uh, it's a, a bit um, – what's the right word I'm looking for? It, it does make it a lot more seamless, but if particularly if you're trying to do something like cross uh, other uh, data centers where half of your stuff is very automated, half your stuff isn't, you definitely need uh, DevOps engineers in these cases. And right. I think that's going to go away much further down the road. But if we've seen this type of shift in 10 or 15 years where everything, when you know, when we started on the Internet, everything, there was sysadmins, everything was manual. And uh, now, 10 years, 15 years later, everything, I'm not everything, but many things are automated to scale and to just use random computers and we've actually created we're we've actually are we have are in the process of transitioning a client of ours from the old way to the new way and there's a there's so many more things in that process than i had actually thought about going into it you you know that very well and uh <laughs> because i just thought that you know it's a server you could just you know do stuff and i was stuck in the 2000s too so this has been a great learning experience for me but we'll talk about that later because DevOps 
could you say DevOps is a part of IT? Like the square rectangle thing we always get caught up on? Uh, <laughs> uh, I don't like the word IT. You don't like the word IT. It has a stigma. So is IT now just well, called DevOps? IT, I, well, no. I, I, I've always found IT to be like desktop support in many companies. Okay. IT as a field, very generalized from an academia standpoint maybe, but just tech itself where you're calling it tech – that's that's different in most companies. But if and you were where I think it, in charge it, it of, and, of maintaining a, a server in, around the you know in the early two thousands, you'd be an IT guy. If you were doing the same thing, well, minus may, fifteen years at the DevOps depend, engineers doing now, you'd be still, an IT guy. I'd say it still depended on the company. Like if you're at a company where you were a hosting company, which back in the day that would be that, that there's actual physical servers, you had to set them up and provision them. And all these things, uh, that would be probably a bit more the IT guy. Well, uh, your sysadmins might be considered IT. Your sysadmins might be considered, uh, depending on the size of the company, I've noticed too, uh, some of them might be considered part of your dev team because they're just dealing with deployment. Or you have guys who are dealing with the upkeep and they might be called the IT, they might be called the dev or just engineering or something. Interesting. But the maintenance stuff, I mean, I feel like that's another one of those things that will continue to manage and continue to automate and continue to need less and less human involvement. I think a lot I think a lot of that stuff, yes, to the point where all of a sudden you really need a DevOps guy just for setup, which uh, for all of these people who are in the cloud, uh that's, you kind of see that right now where it's just, oh, hey, I need an Ansible playbook to spin up uh, EC2 instances. And um, since I'm not in, at an incredible scale of my database, I can use the hosted uh, RDBMS. Or if I need uh, big data with air quotes, not real big data, I'll use the DynamoDB. Interesting. Uh, so the, the heart of the job up. is really assessing the needs of the application and how to arrange that so it'll scale to the... Po- expected uh, population of visitors. Yes, and then I, you I have to, cr- and then accurate. your solution is figuring out which pieces of infrastructure, architecture, automation, orchestration, software that you have to put together to allow that to actually happen. Mm-hmm. Okay. From what it seems, I could be wrong. DevOps started in 2007, and much like many of these terms, it starts when some Yahoo has a thought and he writes it down somewhere, and people like it. Where responsive web design came from, some Yahoo just thought of full stack. Just some, you know, some guy says it at a conference, and then it becomes gospel. So what happened? Too- uh, if, if I remember DevOps, they credit that to a combination of uh, really uh, two particular. Oddly enough, the two places that are also usually credited with uh, the creation of um, uh, Agile. Okay, interesting. Well, this is 2007 at Google's uh, Agile System Administrator Group. Uh, Patrick Dubois. That sounds similar. And but, there was, a two, uh, there was an Agile to... conference in uh, 2007 so... in Toronto that also, I think, that's where they they say DevOps as a thing began. Where... Yeah, I would definitely say Agile, I mean, sorry, DevOps as a buzzword and per- perhaps as a uh, actual defined culture originated out of Agile itself at these conferences about Agile where you had, uh, I'd say, the two big hitters were uh, some of the founders at Pivotal, some of the founders at ThoughtWorks. Interesting. Why uh, do... And, 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 and modern DevOps doesn't ha- necessarily have to be coupled with Agile, does it? No, it doesn't. Um, is, are it, things like it, Kanban, it, it, it is it that still Agile? So, or is that no, no, that's a bit more of like... 
that, that's different. Okay. But so I'd say you can have DevOps without Agile. Agile is very difficult without DevOps. That makes sense. And uh, in order to facilitate that, you also need something, some project management tool too, like Jira. Or uh, Pivotal Tracker, Tracker or Trello, or, uh, yeah, or uh, what's the new one I saw recently? Um, I don't know. They're just like messaging like, platforms. Somehow they're all worth billions of dollars and do exactly the same thing. They're not really messaging platforms, but they're like... No, I said they're like messaging platforms where they're all worth a billion dollars, but uh, essentially do the same oh, thing. Oh, yeah, that, that reminds me. There's a, new, there's a new thing in like the Slack space, too, which is another one of these that, tools that uh, companies use to help with communication and enabling things like this. I I, uh, I spent a lot of time at a WeWork in Union, Union Square, and I have not seen anyone not use Slack. Like, so there's, there's most people there. in those co-working spaces. It's so big. There's a right new now. one out there. My, co- my company's get, uh, glanced at it. Uh, it's called Twist. And it's kind of, think of it like real-time email as opposed to a chat uh, app where all of a sudden you have these particular topics that you can go back and forth with, and then once you're done with it, you can let it die. You can what? Sorry, you cut out there. You can you can let it die. So you have ah. this uh, t- t- topic based uh, chat, basically that uh, is organized like email. Cool. But yeah. I, I mean, well, whatever. It's, they're all commodity products. What are they going to? What, what kind of IP are they really going to pull out of that? All right. Yeah. It's true. Anyway, I think we should get into a bit more of the details of yes. DevOps. Uh, more of the details of DevOps. Uh, there, there, it touches on many things. It's almost like a halo in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess the, one of the biggest goals of DevOps is re- reproducible deployment. And that well, say, you wait, should be able... Re- reproducible is a big one for uh, particularly the case that we were uh, setting things up for. Absolutely. If you uh, are just, but... you know, you have distributed stuff and you, you uh, need to... That's... Sorry? Yeah. Uh, well, I'd say like you can sum it up, and uh, you want your deployments to be predictable, uh, stable, and uh, quick. Uh, this you, way, you if you have to spin something up or tear something down, it's a relatively quick process, and you can you know grab a cup of mm-hmm. coffee while it builds and deploys, yeah. and you don't have to sit there having a, having an anxiety attack. Unless you're writing it for the first time, and then of course you will. Um, mm-hmm. But the thing about reproducible deployment is, how do you? Uh, you know what? Actually, I'll ask that question later when we get into the what we did. Um, reproducible deployment is the goal because that allows basically infinite scalability, right? Well, depends on where you're running your servers. <laughs> I mean, it's all within constraints of like, is the thing actually performing well? Will it actually max out the memory on the server, the resources on the well, server? So there's... But- there's- there's two kinds of uh, scalabilities to talk about. There's vertical sca- scalability, which is uh, being able to squeeze out more performance out of your current resources. And there's vertical scaling, which is being Horizontal able to scaling. expand your resources. Sorry, yes, I said vertical twice, didn't you I? Did. Yeah, sorry, horizontal. All right, so... Where that, yeah. All right, let's do this again. Vertical scaling is what? That is being able to squeeze out more performance out of your current resources. Horizontal scaling is... Adding resources. Adding resources, which could be another server, it could be more memory, it could be block storage, it could be anything. could be another process even. Another process even. Okay. Uh, now, how do, we, how, do we, uh, how do we save all that data? What are we using to save all this stuff, whether it's code that's stashed somewhere that has to be added? Uh, is it just all in some giant Git so, repo somewhere? Co- code is in uh, the Git repo, definitely. Well, I mean the and, code that, you know, for, the, for the infrastructure stuff. Yes, that's definitely in a Git repo. Okay. Idea. Well, 
version control repo if you're depending on where. But for our case, it was in a Git repo. Okay. And uh, I don't know where I was going with, was going with that. Um, no, okay. Uh, so all the code for the infrastructure has to be in a Git repo and or, or Mercurial repo or some other versioning source control software. Uh, but you're basically te- you're developing and testing everything locally, just like you do with an app, typically. And you can mm-hmm. use containerization to make sure that your entire system will run locally on your computer or a computer on your local well, network. it depends on what you're trying to set up. I think also having something like uh, Vagrant, where you're actually spinning up VMs, gives you a very more realistic standpoint, where the app itself being containerized is awesome, but then you also want to be able to have a server where you're provisioning things like disks, uh, you're provisioning things like uh, network or um, uh, DNS or, well, you can do DNS with containers as well, but uh, it's a bit more tricky actually than with VMs as well as uh, being able to do things like uh, like, um, just set up teardown, make sure that uh, these things are repeatable with Vagrant is a bit more, it's a bit easier than something like Docker, where you have an image that's really geared towards an app. Now, it's a very interesting distinction between Vagrant and Docker. Vagrant is a virtualization software. You can create virtual machines in it. Not, it's not virtualization software. It's not virtualization it's software. Of, it's a way of, um, what's the right word, um, instructing your virtualization software in a uh, scripted manner that's a bit, it's a bit more structured than, uh, say, Bash scripts. Okay. Well, what about versus Docker? Because if you say, uh, I want a Docker image with, you, you so can say from Docker, this OS and it downloads the whole OS or a, mi- right. a micro It doesn't download the entire the OS, OS, though. It downloads the entire uh, file system of the OS, which is uh, actually in a copy on write file system that gets uh, packed into a tar. So understanding the underlying uh, structure of the runtimes also helps. But then how do you. A g- container is just a file system. That uh, the it is actually uh, being uh, mounted as a subvolume of the host file system. Okay, that makes sense when I'm running it directly on my local machine. But if I have it, mm-hmm. if I have a Docker container inside of a Vagrant machine, then isn't that a double operating system? No, you have it running on the VM instead of on your local machine. So you don't. So you don't use that line. Docker has that. Docker files have that line. This is from. You can give like an OS name. No, you, you do. That's saying what base image you want, which is just any tar that you have of a file system. Right, but you can, but it will download. We it'll download that on top of the yeah. already existing so, OS that's on the so, Vagrant box. No, say you say uh, from Ubuntu sixteen oh four. You're not getting the Ubuntu kernel. You're not getting uh, the uh, slash sif slash prod. How does it run though? All you're getting. It's just a process that then using uh, the uh, kernel namespaces, uh, we've had this discussion so many times, by the way. <laughs> I haven't got it <laughs> but, yet, uh, but okay. <laughs> uh, it uses the kernel namespaces to isolate out the process, and one of them happens to be the mount namespace, so you have a cheroot, and uh, that's where all of a sudden you have in, say, like, slash mount somewhere, you have this copy on write file system that exists that is uh, being used through some sort of uh, device driver, that uh, Docker is orchestrating, whether it be um, uh, like uh, uh, if you're using ext4fs, you're going to be uh, Docker defaults to aufs. Wait, hold on a second. The, using... the biggest hangup that I have is that it really does look like another operating system is running when you when you go into a Docker container. Yes, you can do like you it, can you can use whatever package manager and what, run whatever commands that are in there right. for whatever OS because those are all files because they're all files. 
It's all part of the file system that you download from the top. But isn't that just installing the operating system? Isn't that what it does anyway? No, it doesn't have the same kernel. It doesn't have... What kernel does it use? If you say get Ubuntu... It uses the host kernel. But So it's going to execute Ubuntu executables using my Mac OS kernel? No, because you're going to have a VM no matter what on but Mac I'm running, OS. But I've run these Docker containers right on my Mac OS machine, and they work. Yeah, are you using Docker machine or are you using Docker for Mac? Docker. Either way. Uh, they updated. So now it's... Uh, I'm, not, I'm using well, the newest one, use, whatever the new thing is. They, they still use Docker machine, but there's Docker for Mac, which is a unit kernel that just gives the bare basics of a uh, Linux kernel Looking now. for you to run Docker containers on. And Docker machine is a uh, type of Debian that's just running as a VM. It's a Docker for, for Mac. Okay, so that's actually running a unit kernel that looks like a Linux kernel. And that can just do all the stuff that any version of Linux can do? Uh, all the stuff that Docker needs it to do. Interesting. I'm so confused by how it's like half half of an operating system, but it can still do all of the things that a normal operating system can. You just have to install all of the packages manually. All of them manually. Well, you need a, you need a Linux kernel, and you need... Uh, it's Yeah, it's the bare... Uh, file system that usually um, like if you're on anything Debian based it's going to be uh, dbootstrap and uh, if you're on Fedora it's a DNF something or other and uh, I don't know what the CentOS one is offhand interesting DNF not to be confused with DTF yes which all all those do is say pull the bare basics to have this system image into a particular mount which then gets tarred up and sent somewhere else. But if you're running, if you're running a, a Docker container on a Vagrant machine that has the same operating system as the one that you're trying to pull in, there will be some duplication, no? Yeah. Oh, Which okay. you can either just you can either just mount them on top, or you can do, uh, like, if you really just want it that you're isolating it for other reasons, say, like, you want an isolated network, you want isolated process space, uh, you don't want IPC be, uh, being something that... Uh, that your containers are capable uh, that the containerized processes are capable of, then you can use containers for that, and then just say bind the root fs. Gotcha, gotcha. Yep. So and I, and also if there is duplication, it's not that big of a deal because the OSs are so small. Right. Right. Um, it is and it is well, really some. cool. I mean, I know it's you know you get that it's like I got that joy when I was writing my first programs. Like oh it actually works like I, I it, it it gets that I get that again like oh wow this whole thing just builds and runs when I just hit this one button and that's I mean that's kind of the long and short of DevOps there are some esoteric standards that aren't in uh, aren't in play anymore like ITIL the Information Technology Infrastructure Library or COBIT which is the Control Objectives Control Objectives for Information and Related Technologies is a good practice framework that has a wife and two kids. Um, no, crea- yeah, yeah. It's, uh, and then oh, ISO, so these are like ISO seven one double seven double nine. That were, you're saying these are rules of thumb, basically. Like they a, were standards um, that were meant to kind of standardize, streamline different operating and infrastructure environments. So then it could lead to something like what we have now. So people aren't implementing things just completely well, differently across so the world. One thing I'll say that was probably actually their biggest issue is culture. Engineers love to follow the standards when it comes to uh, implementations of certain protocols and things. But Do the they? moment you tell them to... What yes, about Microsoft? Least, what about the Microsoft okay, engineers? Microsoft, Microsoft is an entire giant exception <laughs> that has always been a thorn in everybody's side. But other than that, like you look at uh, networking, it's very standardized and uh most people are very good at following that right 
But um, uh, I, the moment you tell an engineer that they have to work a certain way, <laughs> that is usually a deal breaker. I mean, everyone even gets hung up on spaces versus tabs, let alone things like this, yep. service design. Um, yep. And this is, they're all, I mean, these standards are big. I'm not, I can't even go into them on the air. Look them up on Wikipedia, but like right, I'd suggest we don't. Yeah, uh, but it's a, I mean, like ITIL, a set, a set of detailed practices for IT service management on that focuses on aligning IT services with the needs of business. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, COBIT is released in '96, uh, created by an international professional association, IS Isaca, ISACA, for information technology management and IT governance. COBIT provides an implementable, quote, set of controls over information technology. And, uh, yeah, it has all this stuff. And I, like, I, you know, from the episodes where we've gone back into, like, and in, in we've done histories. We did, the, like, history of, of mobile development. We've done mm-hmm. other histories. Um, there's some, you spend so much time glossing over these frameworks and libraries and standards that just don't exist anymore. Is it really? Do we really need to know this stuff? Is it good to have as context so we understand where where we were? So now we can have a better idea of where we're going. I think when it comes to like old technologies that were uh, very popular, yes, and unfortunately, we're need... talking about quote old technologies from two thousand because it's twenty seventeen. So that's ancient. That that is very old. Very old. Very but old. but these are a bit more like process as in human process frameworks which doesn't really those usually die out for a reason ah i see so the, yeah that makes sense because technology changes enough to where it would necessitate different habits and working styles mm-hmm. um okay so we've talked about reproducible deployment and backups um what about redundancy there's two types of redundancy or are there more types of redundancy than what i'm thinking of well there's I don't know why you're thinking of two. I'd say there's one where it's just, you have multiples of the same thing. Well, which, right, but I mean, it could be I, like multiple. It could be like in the same data center. It could be cross regional data centers, oh, sure. or it could be cross well, data center data centers. So let's say with the with the, you know the cloud, it's less of a big deal to have all of this redundancy. You still want to have a backup that just spins. Like if you have the like, it's also interesting to see like how this impacts based on money. If you have the money to pay for multiple servers and you have, uh, say, uh, one in New York, one in San Fran, and one goes down, you sell the other, the downside to those is uh, DNS propagation there. It'll take some time to kick it over. While if you have two in in the same uh, data center and you have them behind a load balancer, one falls over, the load balancer will still send uh, traffic to the other one automatically. Interesting. So then you don't have the DNS propagation issue. But isn't that really only during uh, deployment or build time? The DNS propagation well, issues? Well, so once your NYC server falls down and say it was using a different record than your San Fran server. But wouldn't it just publish all the records when the DNS servers say, oh, it's it's this IP and this IP, and then because of the New York one right. is first, it just goes to that. But, but if it doesn't exist, well, the, then it'll just go to the San well, Fran no. one? So there's certain companies that certain people work for where it, this stuff is automated. But, I don't know who, but yeah. Um, anyway, uh, no. Uh, but, so uh, it's automated so via what? Via geolocation? Health checks that will say uh, when they, they are, when a health check has failed, pull this IP out of rotation on the DNS record. But uh, 
and there's very fast propagation in a certain company. But, but isn't uh, that, so for, how do they get the fast propagation? Do they have to make a bunch of human-level agreements with other something servers? I, I'm not sure if I can discuss. Is that like a handshake kind of thing? I'm not sure if I can discuss okay. that. Um, but uh, but, uh, but uh, so if you're not using that particular company's DNS, then normally you have uh, you, your server is down. You have to actually change the DNS record unless... Unless both servers were already pointing to the same, uh, sorry, you had one record pointing to both servers already, and that's the record being used. Right. You have to then say, like, say you had nyc dot blah 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 dot com, and then you had uh, sf dot dot blah 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 dot com, and now you just want nyc for the time being to go to the uh, San Fran one. You could create a C name or an A record pointing to the San Fran server now, but that would take time to propagate. Gotcha. So the load balancer kind of handles that along with the geo uh, the geo DNS that, that uh, a company that we may know uses. Well, that's not geo. That's not the geo IP router. Oh. That's just health checks saying if this server has failed health checks, uh, take it out of the rotation for uh, uh, resolved IPs. Gotcha. Gotcha. And we want to, as part of the health check, we need monitoring on all of our servers. How do we do that? So. There's actually quite the interesting history of monitoring tools, and I'd say n- none of them are an absolute one-size-fits-all. How many do you really uh, need fix. to use? Oh, but um, so like there's the very old school way, which well, not too old school, which was like Graphite and Nagios and uh, like uh, like either uh, you built and a what client are those? Or, or built-in client. So Graphite was one of the old school uh, time series databases. As well as Open TSDBs, one of the ones that have been around. Uh, TSDBs, tech, time series database. Yes, in in uh, tech tech years, uh, Open TSDBs were uh, fairly old, but it's been uh, it utilizes Hadoop, so it's been around at least as long as Hadoop's been around. Gotcha. While Graphite's a bit more of a, uh, a traditional database, which you can also say use something like MySQL as the storage backend or something. I believe I haven't used Graphite in years. But then you had things like Nagios was an alerting uh, scripting thing that was written in Perl and that most people complain about, which is why it's nice to see things like uh, TickStack, which is Influx Data's stack for all the monitoring, which includes Telegraph for telemetry, Influx DB for the actual time series database. Um, but you said time series databases were kind of old hat, didn't you? No. I said OpenTSDB specifically. Oh, yes. okay. But then, uh, so Chronograph, uh, which is the client, it's a really nice one. And Capacitor, which is the alerting uh, system, which instead of it being like your traditional script, it actually gets, uh, you write it like it looks like a script, but then it actually gets cached and uh, it's running as this uh, stream of data processing that's uh, actually being uh, run by Capacitor itself. So you, you use Capacitor and tick scripts to pull data out of... Uh... Of the of the influx well, to, or, uh, to to query data from influx, which query, influx okay. is this really cool feature. And you out- influx is this really cool feature called uh, continuous query, okay. which is basically run a query uh, on an open connection, and then as data comes in, you can process it. Cool. But what happens? But then the connection just keeps open in, until you have, have until the query's done, which is never yes because it's open. Right. Won't that hang things up? Right. No. Yeah. Uh, it's like having a WebSocket. Okay. Um, okay, so then you, you pull things out of uh, InfluxDB and you pipe them mm-hmm. in with certain metrics and you pipe them into Capacitor, which then uses well, no. or, or well, you no. use Capacitor. Capacitor is, 
capacitors querying influx. There's a so reverse the flow of data there. Okay, and that gets sent to Telegraph. No, Telegraph is the thing that's actually putting data Stuff into, into an influx, uh, influx. Okay, so Telegraph. Yeah. Comp- monitor. What, does that actually Telegraph? Does that actually monitor the data? So no, and it's then it dumps that into Influx, so it, and then that, like, and then uh, you pull it out. You, with... you run Telegraph on uh, on a, a server, and say you want it to monitor uh, user space memory, system space memory, u- uh, system CPU, user CPU, uh, disk uh, usage. Uh, but those are like the, the usual ones that everyone's like, oh, you got to monitor. The actual important things to monitor though are the things that tell you whether or not your app is running. So. Uh, like an HTTP health check or UDP or TCP or just open up the uh, TCP handshake uh, monitoring. Those will tell you if your app's actually running. If you have uh, like if you're running Docker, maybe you want to know uh, the actual health of Docker itself. Yeah, it'll give you like uh, how much copy and write space you have. And so uh, this like the, uh, the script info. stuff that's using capacitor and not Telegraph. Yes. Correct. So how do you configure Telegraph? Just like a com file, and you tell it what what you want yeah, to pull out. Yeah, it's just using a uh, it's using a toml file okay. to say I have uh, the Telegraph runs on this uh, sends data to uh, this database, which it doesn't necessarily have to be Influx. It's just it was built with Influx, so it works sure. nicely. It was the first one to work. And then I want to observe these uh, particular metrics, which they have a bunch of built-in ones, and you can also specify custom ones. Okay. And then so you so Telegraph does all those metrics. You configure it to say what you want, dumps that into InfluxDB, mm-hmm. then you pull it out with capacitor and tick scripts. Mm-hmm. And then... Which then will run whatever action you specify on them when they hit a certain thing. So Like you said, with the health is, checks, it could be pulling an IP out of a DNS round robin. Right? Is that something you could do right. with capacitor? Or? Yeah. So you could do that with capacitor where it's saying, if I hit this particular... Uh, if I'm getting... Say zero two uh, hundreds between uh, one second. Pull this out of uh, rotation on there. Gotcha. Or you can also say if I'm seeing ridiculous latency on these, where uh, capacitor has some really awesome uh, capabilities when it comes to calculus. To actually say if this thing has a really sharp raise in something or a sharp dip in something, uh, do some action. Ah, that's really cool. And, yeah, and you can also uh, run custom actions where th- that you just. Uh, put it as an executable on the, on the server and it'll execute whatever that is interesting uh there's yep. also um discrete from logging or sorry discrete from, blew it ah discrete from <laughs> monitoring is still logging that's completely separate what do we use for logging so uh we specifically are using elk in this project elk but is... there's things elasticsearch uh logstash and kibana interesting so yet where... another stack yes uh, Elasticsearch is a, you could call it a database, but what it's actually doing is just uh, providing indexes on uh, particular binary store, data stored in binary, which makes it actually uh, very good at searching text specifically. So Yes, uh, except that well I wasn't able to get it to work with whereami.nyc, but... It needs a lot of RAM. <laughs> it runs on What's a lot of RAM? I've got 16 gigs on one computer. I've got 32 gigs on another computer. What does it need? It... It depends. It's quite complicated to get Elasticsearch running happily. Yeah. But um, then there's Logstash, which is a way of aggregating all your log inputs and then putting it into Elasticsearch, which that's running in on that's written in JRuby. So yet another JVM thing you have to run. Great. Yeah. 
but uh, can't keep that Java out. Um, and then no. okay, that's and Kaban is actually a Node app that provides a client to the uh, oh, great Java and and JavaScript, From wonderful combination. Um, yep. Okay, and then what's a Graylog? Graylog is similar. You still need Elasticsearch, and it also uses MongoDB as a way to provide configuration. It uses Elasticsearch itself. and Mo- oh for config. Okay. Yeah. So you can actually have a very small MongoDB in this case. You can even have it write to a RAM disk instead of, or just write to memory. There's a, as of like Mongo three dot something, you can use a memory storage, and then Graylog itself provides a um, uh, all these uh, fancy things like you do have stream processing on your logs, so you can do like what capacitor does for metrics. You could have Graylog do for uh, your logs. You could also have it um, uh, kind of modify its buffers to say. I want to take in this many logs at a single uh, point in time, or uh, so you have ways of just uh, tweaking your performance in a bit more of a simplified way, as opposed to Elk, where you have to really know Elasticsearch and Logstash to be able to tweak performance. Gotcha. And then, of course, you could still just dump everything out into a local file if you wanted to, as a bare minimum. Yeah, then you have to know where to find uh, what file you need, and then grep what you're looking for. And, then, and it's more it's more C, uh, it's more CPU that you're using. So if you're on a very uh, if you're on a server that's being slammed with CPU right now, and you're trying to figure out why, that doesn't really work. And if you're also if it's a server that went down, all of a sudden you lose those logs. Right, right, right. And I actually once had PHP error logs kill a server that ran twelve websites. Well, that's actually. But twelve websites. It sounds perfectly fine. No, <laughs> like it, it was, it was it the reason was. No, I mean perfectly fine. Isn't that makes a lot of sense? No, it was. It was. It, no, they were. They were all basically the same website with different templates. That's why there were twelve of them. Mm-hmm. But it was the fact that PHP when it uh, PHP five. I'm not sure about seven. When the, when it ships by default, it is configured to. I'm pretty sure it's New York time. But it all has a message that says you're using the default time zone configuration. Change it. And every time you use a date or time function, it'll output that into the error log. And if you have a bunch of stuff that uses those functions times a number of websites, it created a 10 gigabyte log file with just repeated, you're using the standard PHP log or date time zone. Okay. Is that really that big of a deal, guys? It's not <laughs> messing up any math on my end, all right? So, anyway. Uh... You would want to have logging on a separate server, then, right? Just in case one does kind of die, you'd want to know what happened. Yeah, exactly. So, like, we're using rsyslog, uh, which is basically a uh, ramped-up version of syslog to uh, send those uh, logs elsewhere. Uh, we're using instead of running uh, logstash on those servers again, or um, sorry, you'd probably actually use Filebeat, which is a um, particular service uh the uh elastic uh company created that uh tails a file sends it elsewhere basically it's a go program uh which you could also run logstash locally and have it do that as well or you could have it just uh, write to logstash we're using um uh our syslog instead because it's a low memory c program that is very efficient and we didn't uh, want any footprint on our uh our logging basically gotcha gotcha um. All right, so that's monitoring, that's logging, uh, automation. So mm-hmm. we ha- automation is CI/CD part of automation, or is it just its own thing? It feeds into automation. Automation is a big umbrella, right? For saying things like configuration management, which in our case we use Ansible. There's things like Salt, Chef, Puppet. I've heard Chef a lot. What is that? Chef is 
one of the earlier on ones that uh, when it started out was actually kind of interesting thing. It was like this uh, uh, set of uh, Ruby based tools that uh, would provision your servers. As it grew, it grew uh, more complicated, and now it's this uh, big kind of distributed system to actually provision all your servers. And uh, they added things like orchestration and uh, app management. Are you saying it has Netscape Netscape syndrome? Uh, I don't know what you're getting at with that. It just became really bloated because they added a bunch of features in it, and it needs to be streamlined and rewritten. Well, they have the benefit benefit or hindrance, depending on how you look at it. But... uh, they one they're very geared towards enterprise at this point in time, so it's a lot of these big companies who have money to throw it. I like be like, oh, just spin up more servers. They have that kind of money to do that, and so they are able to run the Chef server. The um, there's a bunch of other things that I'm blanking on. That's the one I know because that's the one that they rewrote originally. In um, it was originally written in um, Ruby, I believe they rewrote it into uh, either Erlang or Elixir which was pretty interesting to take a lot of requests. And that's the thing that actually handles... Uh, oh, there's also the Chef Agent, which runs on every server, which that, depending on how, you're, uh, how you feel, is another process running on your actual production servers, mm. which is one thing that Ansible has up on it, where Ansible is actually just a bunch of Python under the hood that is uh, executing things over SSH, actually. And Ansible, I guess, is to... younger than Chef, so they got to learn from Chef's mistakes? Only by, like, a year, I think. That's enough that, in actually. tech. Although... They got acquired by Red Hat, so uh, yeah, development really picked up when Red Hat uh, uh, acquired them. Okay, and now and because originally it was just like, oh, copy these files here, install this, install that, uh, create this user. Now there's all these modules, and it's kind of endless to see. Like, like Ansible, if you need something, Ansible, you could really never. You don't need Bash anymore in Ansible. <laughs> Because Ansible can do anything, and like we said, that's really the tool that can allow you to orchestrate things. Or is, is it really orchestration? Mm-hmm. It allows you. Uh, you it can you can accomplish it with it. I was going to say it allows little, you to orchestrate things over a variety of computers with possibly different operating environments. Yeah, if you're using the pay for tool Ansible Tower, uh, something like orchestration is much more gotcha capable. And there's things like Salt, uh, which is an interesting middle ground uh, between. Uh, things like Chef and Puppet, which are a bit more heavyweight, and things like Ansible, where it's a very simple syntax, and it's still doing things over uh, SSH, I believe, but you do have this server that is actually uh, carrying out all these commands as opposed to just these scripts running from somewhere like you do with Ansible. Ah, if you... I mean, if not SSH, what does it use to do stuff? I could just... uh, It's probably SSH if it's just running a bunch of things to provision... But you have the server doing the connections. It could also be something like, uh, well, so interestingly, the things like uh, Chef, I've always been a little, the part I always lost is you have to actually install the um, Chef agent already. Uh, The way a lot of places solve that is that they uh, actually create the image up front and then they deploy uh, with the, the Chef agent. And then that image gets deployed to the server at which point Chef actually runs on the thing. Because there's also the um, another part that this uh, configuration management gets into is baking versus frying, where baking an image, you can run your configuration management on an image itself before it's actually being shipped to a server. So this is in like uh, your CI, CD pl- uh, platform, or if you are just uh, building a raw image somewhere, it'll you, you have this uh, uh, file system that you're provisioning, that gets all packaged up. Uh, if you're packaging up a VM uh, instance, you're probably using an ISO and then that gets pushed to a server, or AMI if you're on Amazon specifically, 
sorry, and it gets pushed to a server, and that gets installed there. That's the baking way, and uh, the frying the way. Frying is... way is you already have an image on the server, and then you uh, provision it, which is what we did, because Ansible does lend itself to frying a lot more easily than something like Chef that requires an agent. And then you can use the Docker files to place the image on the server, right? And then that can fry it with Ansible. Well, we're not you put placing Docker files directly on the server in their case. Oh, I'm but sorry, right. Doing it, right. Yeah. How well, do the we, files we get on the server? Was we, we built the, uh, the Docker images locally. Well, by locally, I mean where we're running Ansible. And then we actually export those to TARS, and then they get pushed up as uh then they get gzipped actually because their uh, the, their images is not exactly small. Docker does this for you under the hood when you're doing like a Docker push, but we also uh, we're running uh, with the constrained resources. We're not paying for a Docker registry, so what we actually did was push the tars directly up to the servers and then have Docker loaded from the tars. Yes, and then we were also able to wrangle a uh, legacy giant website by using Git, and I found a way to get around Bitbucket's two gigabyte uh, repo size limit. I'm not happy that I had to do it. You're not happy that I had to do it, but I no, did. I am definitely not. Because, well, what happened was everything adds to Bitbucket fine, and then if you have to edit anything and it's over two gigs, it'll say no. Mm-hmm. And, uh, anyway, actually, I, that was way too early to say that because we haven't talked about the thing that we made yet. But I just wanted to throw that in that you could stash code and you could stash files for this stuff on even a cloud service provider for code and if everything is really up to date everything could just create it can use git to create an archive a tarball from the remote repository and then just throw that onto a server your whole everything can just be in a cloud everything could just be distributed mm-hmm. i mean i don't Pretty know much. it's cool it's it's cool because because i remember the old way perhaps because i remember when everything just had to be on your local machine or it was a local server running in a web development shop somewhere that you had to vpn into to get access to the git repos uh, or a place that I worked for uh, had hosted Bitbucket, which is, if you thought mm. Bitbucket was so bad, stash? hosted Bitbucket is worse. Stash, right? Yeah, but they changed it to Bitbucket. They rebranded it. Huh. Okay. So well, hosted Bitbucket is hosted... now just Bitbucket. It's not Stash anymore. And then Some of the hosted uh, version control uh, systems are kind of seamless where you have things like GitHub Enterprise or, or it's just GitHub but on your server. I would bet that or GitHub have, streams uh, updates uh, to their enterprise clients, though, don't they? Yes. I feel like Atlassian just kind of kept you us on this old version. You also have GitLab, which uh, is actually GitHub's probably uh, GitHub's probably more concerned about GitLab than uh, Atlassian in their space. Gotcha. What I was saying is I feel like Atlassian just kind of kept us on this old version because we that's the one that we got yeah. and they never really updated it. Not because so we couldn't get that sweet new navigation. Oh, man. <laughs> that loads the entire page, I, making you think nothing just, happened before it loads the data. I, I, I think the uh, Bitbucket UI is just god-awful. Like, even uh, the open-source solutions like Gogs, I, I think Gogs is pretty awesome, actually. They managed to get somewhat close to like what github looks like and they're open source and it just runs as a go binary you throw it in your server and all of a sudden you have a full uh git server with a client for pull requests and such up he said it and there's also garrett garrett is the other git client well, which i forget how that one works okay but first i want to say bitbucket uh although the new ui is horrible they did do a nice try i, I appreciate i can see that they tried and I appreciate that. I'm not saying it's not like GitHub has a fantastic user interface anyway. It is just accessible. It's accessible for people who write code all day. So, 
uh, it's I, I, it's just the biggest gripe with Bitbucket, and I and many modern web apps have to function this way, but they somehow manage to look better. They don't is uh, it loads the whole view, and you see the whole view before the data that populates the view arrives from the server. So what happens is, if I make a pull request, you mm, said it, uh, and then I say, and I send it to you. I'm like, hey, can you check this out? When you click on the link, it'll say nothing changed. Two, three, mm. four. Oh, here are all your changes. Well, yep. that's yep. really bad. Say loading. Put a effing spinner up or something to make it to make you not think like, oh crap, did I just did I accidentally delete something? Did I forget to commit? Did I forget something? So, Bitbucket, if you're listening, which you're not, but if you are, please clean it up. Google <laughs> manages to load Hangouts in a way that doesn't make it seem like you don't have a buddy list or and no chats before they load. You can figure this out. Mm-hmm. All right, we've talked about... So, uh, is there more... Where does orchestration, or where does automation become orchestration? Well, orchestration is part of automation. Orchestration is part of automation, okay. Uh, yeah. So, uh, CICD, continuous integration, continuous delivery, that's managed with what? There's... I use a program there's called a Jenkins. That, there's... Uh, yeah, Jenkins is probably the most popular because it's been around the longest. What is there's the one we the use one for Roomba? Maestro. Was that Jenkins or was that uh... uh that was Circle, which Circle uh, we were approaching. Yeah. Yes. We were so we were approaching the speed issue, which was the reason why at my uh, previous job I, I created an open source Maestro, which was that uh, one Circle CI was slow in many cases, but two When you when say you slow, why was built, it, why was it slow? It just sucked. Well, you can either be like, give me more machines and uh, build this part here, build that part there, but then all of a sudden you're using every machine every single time. Uh, and so that would that would make it faster, but it's just saying brute force as opposed to saying only build what I need to, which is what I did with Maestro, where it's like git diff th- uh, this certain directory. Uh, if it has any de- uh, dependence, then also build those if it's changed. Gotcha. And how much work are you actively yeah. doing on my ch- on Maestro? Uh, I have I updated it uh, maybe about a few weeks ago for a few little things. Uh, I, it's not, it's here or there at this point. It's not that I've been doing it very actively. I got a lot of the, uh, go 1.8 features I wanted to get in, in already. In fact, I got those in before go 1.8 was a thing. Nice. It's kind of cool. Nice. Yeah. Okay. Well, you can visit Maestro at github.com search Maestro, right? Uh, M-A-E. probably easier to just go direct, uh, github.com slash CPG 1111 slash Maestro. Okay. Either one. M-A-E-S-T-R-O. Maestro. Uh, okay, so there's so that's they basically. What is the the basic goal of a continuous delivery service? Well, continuous integration and continuous delivery are they are they They're not a the little same, different? Two names for the same thing. They're a little different. Continuous integration is the idea of every change you make being able to be integrated into the current system. So that's the idea of running all your tests, whether they be unit tests, functional tests, platform. Te- uh, Functional plus platform tests are usually uh, the same, and the things that the likes. Uh, so you have, um, if you're doing like front end stuff, you might do headless browser testing, which can be pretty heavy work that takes a bit of time because you're setting up a headless browser and then it's re- actually rendering everything, just you don't see it. Uh, or you're just doing unit tests, which are really fast, or functional tests where you might be spinning up either you deploy your co- code change to a uh, testing environment. And it runs all these automated tests to see does it pass, 
which is why things like Jenkins are nicer than these hosted solutions, because if you are behind a firewall, you can just have Jenkins behind the firewall, and you don't have to deal with any of the rules of saying, I need to somehow get access to these pl- things on my platform to run platform tests. Ah, because it's already behind the firewall. Yep, same thing with Maestro. Your hosted solutions, on the other hand, while things like Travis CI, you can get a hosted version of, uh, but things like Circle CI and CodeShip, I don't... Codeship, you might be able to get like an enterprise version that uh, does it. I don't know about Circle. But with those, you're not behind the firewall, so things like that can be a bit more difficult. That's the CI side of it. The CD side of it is then uh, taking a buildable artifact, building it, and shipping it somewhere where if it's, you're doing delivery, it's just every build is uh, deliverable, which means then you can actually put it onto a server if you so choose. But uh, sometimes continuous delivery and continuous deployment get mixed up, and that one's actually a bit more understandable, where all of a sudden you just take continuous delivery one step further and take the artifact that you built and place it onto a machine somewhere. And that's the versionless world that we're moving towards. Windows, is, they say well, Windows you, is becoming you versionless, be ver- Chrome... You can still be versioned. You should still be versioned. Uh, in fact, uh, the, uh, the way uh, I personally, and I've seen uh, particularly when you get to this pattern of all of a sudden my code, my code change is just up somewhere. It's just a build number is, version or something? Uh, commit, uh, using commit hash. Ah, that works. They're not incremental, though. No, but they're unique to that change. Okay. That's fair. Well, I've actually taken continuous delivery and continuous integration up a notch myself because I've registered perpetual integration in perpetualdelivery.com. Because <laughs> the only thing that's is better that, than is, continuous is, just, is perpetual. Is that just, con- just always deploying your it's code? It's always no deploying ma- no more code and more features because it's perpetual. It's not just continuous where you're just kind of, well, a little piece here, a little piece here. It's more all the time perpetual delivery even if you don't have a new change it just keep, it keeps on uh it will uh, include deploying. the code you're about to write in the next release automatically perpetual delivery may create a black hole on the server hmm. anyway i thought that would be funnier where's our where's <laughs> our effing audience with their uh no! oh, sorry i sorry guys i shouldn't have cursed at you jesus christ uh, anyway um Okay, so uh, we've talked about almost everything. Uh, orchestration, we mentioned. Yes, no. Yes, no. We mentioned automation and CI/CD. Well, I think we t- touched upon orchestration. We've talked about orchestration a lot uh, over the course of our show in its entirety. Things like Kubernetes, Mesos. Hmm, orchestrating that, is just form. is is. I mean, it's orchestrating the the builds and the deployments to actually occur on these servers, well, right? Taking your taking certain services that make up your app and placing it on a server without you caring which or without you having uh, manual control over which server they run on, which you can say like I only want servers with this particular tag. All of a sudden you get into this tagging thing where it's uh, like you might have app servers and you might have DB servers and you might have uh, like uh, machine learning servers that have GPUs in some cases, and you just tag those servers and your orchestration knows okay out of these servers I can deploy this service on those. But if you don't do tagging, it's just I can deploy the, these services anywhere in our, my entire data center, and then you can get into like federated orchestration, where all of a sudden uh, you can say I can deploy this globally. Gotcha. Now um, oh, I just unplugged my headphones. So here's a question: Even though I can't hear you uh, respond because I unplugged my headphones, I can't even hear you laughing right now. Uh, even though you might not be. Um, with uh, or actually, let me plug them back in. Ah, technical difficulties this episode. Really terrible. 
Uh, okay, sorry about that. Um, you still there? Yep. Good. I'm here. Did you laugh when I said I can't hear you laughing? No, I didn't. Laugh. Uh, okay. Um, how do you talk? We have we have a server in New York. Mm. We have a server in San Francisco. How do they talk to each other? Uh, our setup doesn't really talk to each other, which is thankful. But I mean, is that difficult? We you know we we need we need to secure the servers. We need to secure our clusters. We need to secure the data centers. We need to secure all the traffic. Well. You get. We do have private networking between, behind everything, so it's easy to uh, to talk to. Is that each, configured uh, by us, or is that configured by the data center? So that's partially the data center. That's partially us. We say we want private networking, and then things like all like all of our monitoring only talks on the private network, not on any. Aside from, we did have to have one thing on any to be able to view the monitoring. So I firewalled off that port to uh, pub, the public, though. Okay. So private networking just creates, is it a software-defined network, SDN, between the servers? Yep. Ah. Which SD, so uh, th- this particular SDN is whatever the, um, our hosting provider is actually using. I don't know. It's probably their own thing that they created. But there's also some open source ones. Like, um, in fact, I had a, co- a colleague of mine just gave a talk on his co- called Quantum. It's super cool, actually. Uh, it, it will encrypt all the traffic uh, coming across as well. Huh. What's the footprint as, on that, though? Uh, uh, very little. In fact, we managed to outpace Flannel. On, What's uh, Flannel? Uh, Flannel is another uh, SDN that's created by CoreOS that uh, has multiple backends, which is kind of interesting. You can do the traditional SDN model where you're doing uh, IP packet encapsulation in a UDP packet that then the SDN controls. Or you it can also use VXLAN, which uh, I believe was actually created at VMware originally, which is just a virtual uh, LAN network. Uh, that it, um, it's kind of a black box to many, so it's just it's VXLAN, it's a virtual LAN. Gotcha. And uh, th- then there's also things like if you're in a cloud provider, you can use their private networking. So Flannel has support for, I know for a fact, AWS and uh, Google's, and I'm, I, I'd need to check for Azure or DigitalOcean. Gotcha. That sounds really cool. Um, anything else in our DevOps ecosystem that you want to talk about? Uh, I think that covers everything pretty much that we talked okay. about. Okay, so now we talked about all of the tools available for DevOps. Or not all of them, but a lot of them. Most of them, maybe. Hmm. And their applications. And their applications, right. So, the, as we mentioned earlier, the real task is for a DevOps engineer is to figure out which of these tools and what kind of uh, assets that I need uh, to make this app actually work well for the number of users that we expect to have. Mm-hmm. How do you do that? Where do you start? So, depending on the amount of time you have, you can do capacity planning. And which, what's that? So that one, it's a lot easier when you have so, when you have something existing to look at, and uh, then you look at your existing metrics. You do some calculations of okay, I see my CPU in the red at these times of days, or in these regions, or these data centers. I need servers here, here, and here. And uh, you figure out, uh, based on how, how much user uh, traffic you see currently, that uh, how many resources you need, and then you usually plus one it to uh, account for growth. Gotcha. Now, if you're on the opposite end of the spectrum and you're you know, in one of these WeWorks as a startup and you're doing your MVP and making your first version of your thing while you're drinking coffee all the time, then what do you do? How do you plan? I would say the uh, planning is largely monetarily then. Oh, so just the most that we have uh, as- for the budget? Yes. Oh, okay. Well, that's an easier equation. That's a, that, that, I'd say that's how to plan for how many servers, uh, what tools to use. Then you have to look at, like, 
uh, what scale will you have with that mo- that that money allows? Uh, if you're going to be like, oh, I'm going to have, I'm going to be snapshotting the internet, then you probably want uh, OpenTSDB, which is meant for huge volumes of data because it's using Hadoop under the hood. Right. If you if you're just saying I just have a website it needs to be monitored, you can use something like Prometheus or Graphite. Uh, and Influx is really good actually at the middle ground where you're you're hosting a website. But you also want to be able to do a lot of uh, like um, qu- uh, querying on that data. The setups, though, between uh, the setup that you would have to do for App One versus App Two is pretty are pretty similar, unless they're completely different uh, apps. Or com- I mean, hmm. I mean, like if it's a if it's an informational app and you have you know they did they're different types of information. They have different UIs, but the server processing is basically the same. Uh, then you could have. Almost the same setup for both of those apps. Right. It comes down to then you have to configure your environment a certain way, which is just configuration. How much of that actually really changes, though, between environments or between for apps, unless they're, unless the apps are really advanced and doing some crazy well, stuff? Yeah, things like, uh, say you're doing just like a prod versus staging, I think is a simple example for this, where all of a sudden you say, I have a staging database, I have a staging uh, backend, and I have a staging uh, web server that's actually going to be serving my front end, or and uh, if I'm using like some kind of templating or something, and it's going to, ha- and then I also have a staging cache for caching assets. And with all that, that that's in one environment, and so you have to have the configuration to say each piece connect to that environment's piece. Uh, sometimes it's, e- uh, it's easy if you have uh, say two separate private networks, which uh, that's a bit more of a monetary kind of thing. To be able to do, then it's very easy to say uh, I have just this one private network that I have all my staging on, and I can have that same configuration then go for the prod instead. But then you change the configuration at your private networking instead of saying each thing has to connect to this particular thing. Right. Okay. And um, so we have your you've you've decided what tools you're going to use. You've decided how big of a footprint that you can make based on the organization and the app. After you get it up and running, can't you just template it? And then your job is basically just peeling off a new template. And like all the configuration yep. file, you just change a couple variable names, change a couple things, maybe add something, take something out. But 90% yep. of your whole stack is exactly the same. Yep. Unless you have something that is actually going to be modifying something substantially. Like say you have a database that's under a lot of uh, load or just you need to get more performance out of your database and you manage your indexes in that database through your configuration management, something like Ansible that is actually setting. You have an index in uh, MySQL or Mongo on these particular fields and all of a sudden you, you, uh, you have a developer who goes to you and says, hey, we need to change those indexes, then that's what you're going to be changing a lot of. But there's also the cases like you, you do scale and you grow, all of a sudden you have to modify that configuration to handle that instead. Uh, if you wrote the, your configuration management really well and you're just like, oh, it's just add more fields, add more add more elements to a list, then that's nice and easy. If you're saying, all right, now we outgrew, say you outgrew Influx, you're at the point where you need TSDB. Uh, it's actually pretty cool to be able to say, I, I'll have TSDB, I'll still use Influx, but then have all of those aggregate and then just flush those uh, after a certain amount of time to TSDB. Gotcha. I guess the biggest, yeah, this all yeah, kind of circles pieces. back to assessing the needs of the situation. Yes. And that's, yes. so that's perhaps the biggest thing, 
is that we have to, and that's spend most of your time doing that, figuring out everything that your your app needs. I messed up. I thought I had it all. I thought I've been working on this thing for a long time, many years. I thought I knew all the things that it did. I was wrong. Because there's things that you assume that, oh, it just does this. And actually, no, that's not. You have to add that on. And it's not. It's almost like I had a client once, a uh, different client, uh, back in my previous life when I lived in Pittsburgh, who uh, would call uh, feature requests bugs. He would say, when I click this link, the whole page refreshes. And not just the content area uh, of the of the page refreshes, the whole thing does. I'm like, yeah, that's what happens when you click a link on the internet. You go somewhere. The whole page changes. Good link go to anywhere. Well, that's how the, that's so how the internet I can works. Understand that. So no, no. So I he said it was a bug, i.e., me fix it for free. That it didn't AJAX request the content. If that was specified ahead of time. It's not a bug. The internet works as the whole page changes when you click a link. Well, that's a value no, add. What I was, what, yeah, what I'm saying though is, if he specified that upfront, oh, upfront, that's, that, that's completely different. Up yeah. front, that, then, then it would be a bug. But the yeah. but he he said it out of the blue, as in the website was already done, and he goes, "Oh, there's a bug because it doesn't do this." Well, no, that that has to be extra. That's added. That's not that's not by default. Mm-hmm. And so I had right. one of those. I thought things like file uploads could be easy, but then when you think about a distributed system, how do you if you upload a file onto one server, how do the other servers know what it is or where it is? So. Right. I don't, and and that that creates another problem. There there are there are solutions, because, but that requires oh, I need more machines, or I need right, this or thing you need block I, storage, I, uh, that or some yeah. kind of storage device that's that's agnostic from the the uh, cluster of servers that you have. Hmm. Well, block storage, the because you mentioned that one, it's kind of uh, tricky because you have to make sure your block storage uh, supports multiple writers. Oh, when you get block storage, uh, and this is from DigitalOcean. And please sponsor mm. us, guys. Now, if you want block storage, uh, how is that just mounted as a drive? It's mounted as a block device, which is uh, to, uh, when you actually have it all configured and said and done, it looks like a drive. But it's actually uh, in in the dev uh, f- uh, folder and how you mount it. It's a little bit different. What type of file system but does it have? It uh, So it's a block device, so you can specify that you have the... It's just kind of like a raw disk until you actually do a makefs, blah, blah, blah. Gotcha. And it has to have support for multiple writers because multiple servers could be writing to it at the same time. For this particular use case, which is why something like an object store is a bit easier, where object stores uh, will actually have, uh, it'll serialize whatever you're trying to write to it and uh, have some kind of underlying uh, actual intermediate storage of that, what you think, it looks like a file. But it might it might be a file for all you know, or it could be this uh, just this hash or uh, binary, or uh, that is then actually uh, being saved on a on an underlying block uh, storage device. So, what, block storage versus object storage. When would you use block storage? Block storage is when I need additional storage to a particular machine. But I also don't need it to be incredibly fast. Like Give me I don't a use need case. SSD performance. What's a use case? I have a database that is uh, read heavy. Uh, actually, really read or write on a database heavy is not ideal. Gotcha. If you need a lot of performance, but I have a database that's uh, got a lot of uh, it's got a lot of data. I'm running out of storage, 
but I also don't need SSD performance on this, then I'd use a block device. Okay, and then an object storage device would just be faster? Same principle, just faster? No, or no? No, no, it's uh, more accessible, usually, it, uh, with an object storage. It's uh, And depending on if you're using a hosted one, you don't have to deal with capacity of that storage on an object uh, uh, storage. Uh, what, uh, but if you're hosting one, like say you're using Ceph or uh, or the other ones, Gluster or Gluster actually offers, I think both of them actually offer block and uh, uh, object, as well as there's one that's built into OpenStack that I'm blanking on. But if you're using one of those hosted ones, you still just have however much space you have on your actual disks. If I have a but, website where people upload videos... Do those videos go to block storage or, or, or object storage? So from an app standpoint, you want that to go to object storage where because it's easily it's accessible from anywhere. Right. It's more well, expensive, no, it's though, more right? accessible. No, not necessarily. It's just it's more easier to get at is, is all because it's uh, like if you're using S3, for instance, it's an HTTP request to get your file. Versus? If you're, versus block storage where it has to be on that particular ser- – mounted to that particular server – and reading from that disk. And object storage doesn't mount as a disk? Or it does? Uh, you could use a fuse mount, which is this uh, user space uh, mount. Right. Actually, I use. I think I use something like that to get NTFS writing on my Mac. Hmm. Don't ask why, but... <laughs> but, it, yeah, so that, that, that can be used uh, for mounting to object storage. Gotcha. But uh, usually, and what's interesting is uh, I've gotten to speak to... Uh, I happened to be at a conference once upon a time, and speaking to this guy who he was currently working on Rook, which is a uh, wrapper around uh, Ceph for uh, usage in or, uh, of object storage and block storage in uh, an, orchestra- an orchestrated environment, uh, specifically Kubernetes usually, and it's really cool, that project specifically, uh, but... Um, uh, what he was saying was that uh, object storage and block storage are very closely related in their implementations, and it's usually uh, a matter of which one do you implement first, and it's often easier to implement block first and then have your object storage built on top of the block store. While there are ones that exist that actually implement object storage first, that then a block store is actually mounting, uh, like doing a, uh, essentially a fuse mount into a block device, uh, or it can actually just be... It's kind of like a pipe block device to the underlying storage of the object store. But oftentimes uh, it's uh, more so the block devices first, and then you have the object storage using the block device. Gotcha. That was quite a lengthy explanation. Um, mm-hmm. All right. Let's talk really quickly. We're almost at two hours. Jeez. Uh, let's talk really quickly about the thing that we made. Now that we've described the whole ecosystem, it'll be really easy because we have two servers Two app servers, one logging server, and one metric server. Now, the previous setup, or I should say the current setup, because we haven't migrated yet, uh, my client, and I mentioned this last week and earlier this episode, my client is on a hosting deal, I'm going to call it a deal, uh, from 2004, that they're still, he's still paying a 2004 price for what he thinks is a 2004 product, and it is not. He's paying $700 a month for what he believes is a dedicated box in a data center uh, somewhere times two because it's redundant and they're shadow copied so they're exactly the same thing and there's two dedicated boxes and then a separate database server and that's it and then the, and and the managed hosting he, ha- he I'm sorry he has managed hosting and that's a larger part it's more than 50% of the expense monthly 
Uh, so, but what? It's also important to specify what managed hosting is there, which I'd imagine it's the cPanel. No, they don't have cPanel. It's huh. it's if you have any if you they give I mean they just give you a shell and if you have any further questions you can ask somebody. Now the problem is this. Here is the here is the big deal with managed hosting. In my mind, and I have to preface it with in my mind because I also provide customer service to clients like this this client of mine. If I provided managed hosting to somebody and their operating system became end of life, I'd let them know before it became end of life. Wouldn't you agree? Wouldn't that be nice? Mm-hmm. That's not what this hosting provider did. They let it end of life and said nothing. And then I find out... So I believe most most cloud providers will... Uh, they will... I don't want to call this a cloud urge, provider. Yeah. But... No, yeah, it is not in this case. It is not providing a cloud. But... Uh, but no, but uh, I'm saying, what I'm like, saying is like... It's, it doesn't matter. You know, he's, he's paying enough in hosting fees to rent a studio apartment somewhere, not in New York, but, you know, somewhere else. And, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's true. And uh, he's paying enough to rent a studio apartment, not in New York, and he's getting nothing for it. Anytime we have an issue with the host, we have to call them. Anytime, anytime, it's, it's not the level of managed hosting that I believe they should be delivering because I still have to talk to them. I still have to manage a lot of stuff on my own. And then whenever I do have an issue and I do have to escalate, I have a problem because they, they always try to find a reason why they're not at fault. That's not what I would consider managed hosting. Or maybe it is, but it's not very good. So right. we pitched them because I just read The Art of the Deal uh, where it's really just one sentence. It's The Art of the Pitch plus Damage Control. That's the whole deal. So, because you realize that very rarely mm-hmm. do uh, my clients doesn't listen to this. No, uh, very rarely do business deals actually execute the way that they're supposed to and under budget. Very rarely does that actually happen. But you have to always pitch that it will, or that it'll be early and under budget somehow. And then the rest of the project is just damage control uh, from prevent from you know trying to make it seem like your failed promises aren't actually failed promises. Now. I believe in doing good work for good good quality work for good quality pay, and I don't just try to. I just explain something that sounds like a shyster tactic. Like I said, I just read <laughs> Donald Trump's book, but uh, it, that's a lot of it. Uh, whether it's a government project, whether it's the Freedom Tower, whether it's anything, whether it's the new Kosciuszko Bridge that they're trying to demolish and recreate, um, it, it's it's nothing. None of that gets done on time and under budget. There's always always way late and over budget, but yet people are still happy when it's done. Why? Damage control. Why they get the gig? Art of the pitch. Here's another example. Uh, I knew my ex girlfriend worked for a company that paid two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year for their website and a CMS. I don't know how. That's the art of the pitch. When she had to upload an image, she had to call someone on the real phone and say, I'm emailing you this image. Could you upload it to this page, please? $250,000 every year. CMS. Every <laughs> year. CMS there. For this, I, if you uh, upload a freaking image, really? You have to call someone? I, like, that's the art of the pitch. And the damage control is what happens on the phone when they say, uh, oh, yeah, no, you just you have to do this. I'll, I'll do it for you. Don't worry, no, you're, only, you're not wasting money by doing this. You're just paying my salary, even though I should be part of a piece of software that even WordPress does on its own. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. we 
or, or, uh, so my art of the pitch was saying that we could provide, pneumonium can provide comparable service for a fraction of the money because we'll just cut down on the overhead and the BS. And because we, I actually have to deal with all the hosting issues that they have currently, if we manage it, it's not going to be that much more trouble. And the next time their operating system goes out of life, end of life, we'll make sure that he's migrated without him. He doesn't even need to know. He doesn't care. That's our job. That's the way we... In fact, the way we built it, it's very easy to manage those upgrades now. For one, we're in a cloud hosting provider who gives us up-to-date images uh, on our uh, the host OS. Two, we're using containers, so it's really easy to switch images. All we really have to ma- make sure is that the application itself can handle these changes it's, uh, uh, that are involved. Right, and it, and it looks like one thing that we was actually a problem when, when uh, creating this setup was the fact that we weren't using PHP 7. He, my client had been on CentOS 5 for the last 12 or 13 years. I mean, I was not kidding when I said 2004. He's had the same website, well, same server. Actually, I'd say there's a combination of uh, being on an older version of Apache and an older version of PHP. But if they, you know, if the hosting provider did a health check of his servers, he, they could at least, if that's managed by them, they could say, hey, part of our management is making sure that all your stuff is up to date and looks like it's not, so let us help you out. What can we do? Hmm. They didn't say so that. I would also mention we have a cloud provider who uh, th- there's a little pushback on this for certain people. I think it's actually pretty awesome. They provide their own uh, software repositories uh, on the images, and while this used to be the case, it's no longer. They were using their own uh, fork of the kernel. Why did they do that? Just to uh, optimize their hardware? Ca- now they just push. Well, uh, yes, to be able to work at the hypervi- with their hypervisor a bit more easily. Uh, they were actually uh, working on the kernel itself. Now they actually just get these changes upstream, and it uh, works a bit more nicely. That Very way. interesting. Now, in terms of redundancy, we talked about redundancy earlier. Uh, the old, the old slash current way with my client setup, our client setup, uh, has just like I said, it's it's two boxes, which are now virtualized. They didn't tell them that either, uh, but two two virtualized boxes that just one shadow copies the other every hour over rsync or something like that and then if one fails it, it fails over to the second one what is the type of redundancy that we are providing now so right now we have uh weekly backups as well as uh mingle snapshots i mean they have we, backups uh, have... too right and with this because we're in a uh, hosting provider that takes 30 seconds to spin up a server it is actually easier that unless we wanted to up the budget a little uh, we could just say, give us another server right, when this one fell over. So Well, that was the idea like, between uh, ha- with having seconds. two servers. Right. Well, so we're actually in a hosting provider where instead of having the one server in San Fran, one server in uh, New York, having to deal with the DNS propagation, we're actually in a hosting provider where it is faster to spin up a new server than it is to, uh, to actually get DNS propagated across the world. Uh, so it be, uh, we just use the IP address of the previous server. That's that's incredible. That is something that I had a very hard time understanding, just just conceptually. That provisioning because and that's the whole idea to bring this all back around with reproducible deployment. That when we have a script that can just build a, a bo- an image somewhere and and deploy itself on its own. The way that it's set up with the hosting provider, with I guess it might be specific to DigitalOcean. I don't know, but well, it is actually. So, wait, I just have to say this: it is yeah. actually quicker 
for to have them spin up a new server when yours fails over rather than having to redirect the DNS to somewhere else. And then the new server can have the same IP address so there's no changes in DNS necessary. That is actually faster than having the same server already up and running, ready to go, just because of DNS? So in this specific case, yes. If That's we were wow. on other, it, it, We're also using the uh, bottom-tier DNS that's just like a, a, an old bind server that, uh, that DigitalOcean runs. If we were to use a higher-end DNS provider, uh, then it would be the case that we would see this propagation much quicker. Well, and, and the higher-end DNS provider... To go with the, the original one. Right, and then the higher-end DNS provider would also geographically route the requests based on uh, where you are. Yeah, I mean, most DNS does this now. It's just... If you're running a bind server, you won't necessarily. Gotcha. Okay. So we have our two app servers, and because uh, we have, a, we have a, a, a current app and a legacy app, both of them have to keep running. And um, the legacy app we decided to put on its own server. Why did we do that? Hmm. Uh, mostly just the sheer size of it. Yes. The legacy app, it was written, I'm not kidding, in 1998 in PHP 3. And it creates as it, it, there's a transaction as part of the the app and it, and the receipts that it creates are PDFs but rather than just da- streaming a PDF to you or like when you go view your cell phone bill or when you view your cablevision bill whatever you can just click a link it says view PDF that generates a PDF and streams it to you live on demand that's not what this does. This creates a file on the server. So we have a directory, and then it also looks for that specific file on the server when it's being requested. So we have a directory with over 200,000 PDFs because this was written in 1998. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, the new version of the app will do the streaming on demand. And by the way, the old database was also ridiculous. The, whole, the old database was 170 megabytes. The new database that has more data can fit on a floppy disk. So, it's, there, there's a, the, all, the legacy app has a much larger footprint than the production and staging app. But, why didn't we... The, the droplet that we have could really hold both of them. Why, why not just have uh, two at, copies? At its current, at its current size, uh, part of it being longevity... To be able to, and also the fact that would be uh, if we're to put all three environments, prod, staging, and legacy on a single droplet, the amount of isolation required, we have to put all of legacy into containers. That would be a lot more difficult uh. because, and then you also have to, you also have to worry about copy on write space, which takes up more actual. Like while you could have two megabytes in a, a, a of a file on uh, your copy-on-write file system, what that file system will actually take up on disk is a bit larger than 2 megabytes. Interesting, and that also explains why we're not using Docker for the legacy app and why it's on another Mm -hmm. server. And then to monitor both servers, we have a monitoring server. That makes sense because it's separate, and we also have a logging server. And we we used all of the tools we just described to set it all up. And uh, I was testing it earlier today. There were some issues, but we fixed them, and the site works. And uh, now everything... Now, here's, here's the real question. If I have to make an update, what happens? How Do, do I just run, go, enter in the Docker we, container and run git pull? Well, I pray to God that you're uh, making updates to the new Staging. Site. <laughs> well, yes, but the new site. Well the, well, the thing is, is that the updates will be made on, a, on a branch. Then... 
Right. And get. So then you build a new Docker container, and you push that up to the server, uh, and then um, so this is something we don't have in the Ansible that we should have in the Ansible. It's actually say uh, if you're doing an update, then uh, do it in such a way that you load the new version of the image, and you just tell the container to restart, and all of a sudden it says, "Oh, I've got a new image. Cool." Oh. Okay, well, we should do that yeah. because uh, after we get the hosting set up, we still have to do work on the actual website. Yep. So. Yep, it never ends. Never ends and will never be us. done. But that's at least, <laughs> at least we have a client who pays well and on time for good quality work, which is all that you can really ask for when you have a company. Mm-hmm. So, um, the last thing to talk about with DevOps, as we've now reached the two-hour mark, I know we have to go, is um, the future of DevOps, or no ops. As it's called. We said that you're putting yourself out of a job by DevOps. So what happens in the future? Is there, are there going to be self, self-coding computers? No ops? Well, oh, sorry. Ultimately, ultimately, yes, there's going to be self-coding. But I think the more immediate thing is, well, you look at the cloud and it's, it's like, once you have the script to say, here's what I do to spin up my app. I need these servers, and particularly if you scripted the entire platform so that way you have your monitoring, your logging, everything is just automated, then it's just a matter of, well, here's setup, and then I just run any any of these anytime I need more, and it's particularly the case that with uh, things like AWS, they have like the built-in auto, or Google, where you have the built-in auto-scaling feature, all of a sudden you just have like your monitoring feedback to it and say, I need more, I need more, I need more. Likewise, these orchestration frameworks like Kubernetes has auto-scaling into it, but that just says spin up more containers on existing machines, though Kubernetes has integrations into cloud providers like Google and AWS with these auto-scaling you're, things you're, to say. you're getting off track. The thing is, is that no ops is completely automated, isn't it? They say no yes, ops... that's what I'm saying. This is how you achieve it. Oh, okay. Sorry. Yeah. No ops, uh, just like DevOps and all these other buzzwords, some guy at a conference somewhere or on his blog, writes it. This guy was uh, Michael Gualtieri of Forrester Research, or Research, coined the term no-ops in his controversial blog post, quote, I don't want DevOps, I want no-ops. He says, no-ops means that application developers will never have to speak with an ops professional again. Mm-hmm. That's the dream, isn't so, it? So, I, I know Samsung has a no-ops team, <laughs> I don't know how well. How, doing, how, I mean, if you have a team of people that do no ops, how really? How much different is that really from? They're they're application developers essentially that are building software to achieve no ops. Good because uh, DevOps engineers typically make more than application developers. So if we can, you know, kill those salaries, and then they make more though because they also have to be on call. <laughs> uh, I mean, I have a deployment on on Tuesday night. I have to be on call. That's because we're not doing any of the things that we just talked about. Yeah, I was going to say, you guys, uh, yeah. That's not, that's not pneumonium. That's something else. It's also else. interesting people of your, in your position specifically there have to be on call. I, it's, it's, uh, no, it's, I, 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 was, I read this book on continuous integration and continuous delivery. I can't remember what it was called. It was, I actually read it. And it said, it had, it started off with like a bunch of Jeff Foxworthy-esque questions like, if you find yourself on call for giant deployments with a lot of anxiety, you're doing it wrong. If you find yourself hiring more than five, it's like it, it and it basically describes the organization that I work with, and uh, again, it's not pneumonium, and hmm. it's. Uh, it, it, I mean, I'm not a DevOps engineer. I'm not the person to say you're doing it wrong, but I just have to kind of roll, go with the tide, roll with the, go with the flow. There we go, go with the flow, roll with the tide. 
and uh, just hope that. And I am curious though. In the event of an incident, what do you what do you do specifically? Well, the last two times we we had deployments, we actually had incidents. At of course, it's right when I'm going to go to bed. It's like three or four in the morning, and. They were both because someone pushed the wrong... Uh, someone had the wrong Docker image tagged is the wrong thing. Hmm. Yeah. So it's interesting that that... So that, I'd say, is one of the more DevOpsy things to say developers are also involved in this Yeah, case. but I feel and like that's also on the checklist of things that they should tick before calling a developer at 3 o'clock in the morning. I mean, I think ultimately, yeah, that is something that they don't need a developer, really. But I, I do think... Docker tagging particularly, you save a lot of trouble if you automate that part of it to say, I am running this commit. So, uh, like, uh, I like the commit tagging. So tag your container with this commit that you just uh, have as your merge commit. I think it's that we have to tag the... We have to tag a a specific commit as the one that's going to prod. And that they just tag the wrong commit or something like that. Oh, so you guys are doing, like, uh, tag a release that becomes the container and that goes up? I'm going to say yes. I don't entirely know. As opposed to, like, whatever gets merged to master gets pushed to state. Right, right, right. No, we're not. Make make my prod environment look like my staging environment. That's how it should be, but that's not how we're doing it. That's how I usually like to set it up. Right, no, we're doing it. You can also do it where you have... I I specifically tag a release, and then that's what goes to prod. That's exactly what we do. But every every release has to have its own branch and. Excuse me, I was trying to contain a burp. Every release has to have its own branch and Git. Well, are you using Git tag because that creates a? I'm going to say no because we're still creating new new release branches. That create it. It looks like a branch in GitHub, but it's not a branch in Git. No, it's a. I don't. We don't use GitHub. We just use Git, and it's the branches. So, um, yeah. Hmm. Okay. Uh, no ops. I mean, really, is that all we have to say about it? I guess, yeah. Uh, here we go. DevOps versus no ops. DevOps, development and operations, work together early and often throughout the software development life cycle to ensure quality is built in every phase. In no ops, dev and operations never need to interact with each other to get their job done. In DevOps... Ops collaborates with develop, uh, development to select, build, monitor, and maintain self-service solutions, whereas in NoOps, development relies on self-service infrastructure, continuous integration, and deployment solutions. Soon, perpetual integration. Uh, DevOps makes no- just every single time just change, change, more, change. and the changes have change. to be more just- drastic. Just like what Bitbucket did. They perpetually integrated their UI, and look what happened. Um, DevOps makes NoOps possible through principles and practices that are independent of any specific software solution, whereas NoOps is only possible through the use of specific software solutions. Hmm. Yeah. There are seven reasons DevOps is not dying. These don't sound like reasons. Number one, DevOps is a journey. Okay, well, uh, <laughs> that's number one too. Life's a garden. Dig it. DevOps. Who is this? Jeff Bezos. DevOps is a journey, man. Attend any DevOps Day conference, and you'll certainly hear the phrase "It's a journey, not a destination." No, it's a destination. It's the uh, release. No, that that part I that part I actually understand, and I have t- attended DevOps Days as a vendor. But do you guys I, just like have ayahuasca? No, it's a. Uh, it's a bit more like, think of it like group therapy for operational uh, people. <laughs> I work at a company that's so bad. Okay. Um, <laughs> that's basically it. Like, that's half the crowd. The other half the crowd is like, so here's what you got to do. Here, my name is Eric. I'm a DevOps engineer. Hi, Eric. <laughs> 
Um, and then you got the guy with the toothpick in, in, in his mouth. Uh, so, so here's what you got to do. You see, you see that server? Yeah, no, you don't need that server. You need are containers. And is that guy like obese with a neck beard? Usually. Usually. Uh, DevOps adoption is growing. No ops is not one size fits all. Uh, no ops fits within the three ways of, of DevOps. Uh, the first way is flow. The second way is feedback, fast feedback. And the third way is continuous learning and improvement. That uh, could be CL, CI, continuous learning and continuous improvement. Uh, that's not real. Um, DevOps uh, ops happens Bizarre. before productions. DevOps is people. And then the last one is DevOps requires continuous learning and improvement, which I just said. And then they have a nice poster you can mm-hmm. print out. Anyway. So that's it. I think, yep. uh, I think we've talked DevOps to death in our almost two-and-a-half-hour show. That's uh, it's a lot of talking. It's a lot of... Is that our... This is like our second longest episode, I think. Possibly. And this is why the mobile dev one was two episodes. I Like, halfway through this, I was like, should we break it up? But there wasn't enough to make a whole second episode. Well, I think there just wasn't, like, a good breaking point. No, no, it all kind of led into each other, which is fine. We had a very nice yeah. organic conversation. Now, uh, the last thing that I want to talk about is I'm trying to pull this up, but, yeah, is Sega Genesis is coming to iOS. Sitting here for two and a half hours listening to our boring crap, at least we'll end on a good note. Sega is forever. Every Sega game ever made is coming to iOS and Android for free. So I forget if I have a Genesis or, or a uh, Dreamcast. It doesn't matter. In my office, be- because but, if all yeah. the games for both of those will come to both Android and iOS, so this is what? Sega selling out? I, uh, geez. Sega selling out? No, it's just, uh, it seems like a, there's this whole resurrection of uh, retro gaming all well, the time. Well, good, because those were the best games. You don't need to yeah. remake Counter-Strike a million times. Uh, that's basically all of those FPS RPGs are the same. That's why I'm not a gamer. Yeah, They're all the same. Oh, no, but this one's in the Civil War. Oh, okay. Big deal. Well, have you ever played Have you ever played Gary's Mod? No. Gary's Mod? It's just, yeah, it's just a bunch of mods on top of Counter-Strike. That's funny. If they could make it look like some other game, like Battlefield 2 somehow, that would be really funny. If you could just They've mod Counter Strike, they, made, like they made it look like Minecraft in the past. They've done. That's uh, funny. Actually, that might be cool. Yeah. A Minecraft uh, Counter Strike mod, that'd be cool. Anyway, um, Sega Forever will launch this week on iOS and Android for free. Some of the titles that are expected to be released during the Mega Drive games are Altered Beast, Comics Zone, Kid Chameleon, and Fa- Fantasy Star Two, and of course, Sonic the Hedgehog. Come on, come on, come on, chameleon. According to Metro UK, these games will be playable offline and have modern features such as cloud saves, online leaderboards, and Bluetooth controller support. Christian, I may have to buy a television now. <laughs> you, I mean, I guess no. This could probably just... It's iOS. What am I talking about? Yeah, it's just on the phone. I'm sorry. What get, it for I the, uh, to say, get it for your iPad Pro that you want. No, what I wanted to say is now I can finally put my Game Gear away because those Sega Game Gears take 4D batteries and last for like two hours. <laughs> All right, forgot about But this. they were, I mean, amazing devices for the time. In the early 90s, they had a backlit color LCD. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, that blew away the Game I mean, Boy. I also still have my original every, Game Boy. Everything was, more, everything was more popular than the, uh, what was that, the, um, what was that thing that Nintendo had? The, the first oh, the power VR glove? headset. Virtual Boy. No, the first VR headset. Yes, Virtual Boy. No, Virtual Boy had a power glove. Uh, I think the power glove was just a thing for Nintendo. No, I think it was an add-on that was for Virtual Boy. Was it for Virtual Boy? I thought you could run it on the uh, SNES. Oh. I don't know. I, we, we could look it up. 
but so can you. <laughs> um, anyway, anyway, uh, yeah, no, I had. Uh, I mean, I I, uh, the, I heard the thing about Virtual Boys that actually will give you a headache, or like it causes some yeah. like real problem, like dizziness. Well, or, that, that's most VR until they figure it out. Certain. Things, I mean, I, they're probably. I mean, I, I think Very I still get a recently. headache when using VR stuff these days, and that's twenty five years later. So. Yep, I know VR. Huh? Uh, you don't get the pun. I know VR. Yeah. I don't get it. I know we are. Well, it looks like our audience got it. And on that note, <laughs> it's time to end. So, Christian, do you approve of this pull request? Looks good to me. How about, I've never asked this before, how about our studio audience? <laughs> Fantastic. Well, then I guess it's time to hit merge. That wasn't it. And we'll see you all next week, right here on Paul Request. This has been a Pneumonium production. The views and opinions expressed on Paul Request do not necessarily reflect those of Pneumonium LLC or its subsidiaries. This week's theme music provided by Wolfpack. Visit them at VULFPECK.com.